How's that for a slice of fried gold? Oh, you think this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. It's like a week later, and well, hello, <laughs> welcome to Cinema Shock. It's the fucking <laughs> podcast exploring the stories behind your favorite cult genre films. We probably lost half the audience because of fucking right at the beginning. I don't think you can do that. <laughs> uh, i think there's a rule against it but anyway we're three guys you do all the research so you don't have to uh i don't have the exact intro i did last time memorized yet because we haven't had a chance to go back and listen to it because it's really the same day but in either case we're three friends we do all the research we talk about movies we tell you everything you ever wanted to know about a film and the people who made it that's what we do here i'm one of your hosts gary horn hey i'm co-host justin bishop and I'm writer-comedian Mr. Todd A. Davis. Well, we all know that the Titanic but began hosts. to sink. We're but, we're, we're but hosts, Todd. All right, uh, <laughs> Justin. We're, we're all, I'm sorry. I just noticed that. It's like, I'm a, I'm a host. I'm one of your hosts. I'm your co-host. I'm writer-comedian. Yeah. <laughs> not, a, not just a lowly host. I, I am your third. I am the third wheel. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> folks just like the titanic this epic episode of cinema shock was just too big and as we began to sink down into the depths of the details regarding this production we had to crack in half and let the back half fall on a bunch of people and kill it so uh, welcome <laughs> is that this, this half week. yeah yeah that, 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 no, that was that dead. was the first yeah the first half well i guess the first half is already down but mm-hmm. now the the back half, this half, the half Passes that we in are, the air. yeah, we yeah we we cracked in half and we've landed right here in your ear holes for part seven of our series covering Jimmy Cameroon's uh, career uh, in our series titled The Man of Tomorrow. So this is like when you watched Titanic back in the day and it was on two VHS tapes. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, Where, exactly this is like this that. is a VHS tape too. Yeah, yeah. Except I think we had a better ending to our first half than the first vhs how did the first game. vhs oh end? i was gonna ask that that's i couldn't remember where the cu- I, I couldn't remember where the i think it's like was. when they see the iceberg right i yeah it's right that'd around be, there that's yeah. where I, I mean that's right that's halfway through the movie yeah so mm. that's where i would end it that's but. interesting <laughs> i would like to know that because i never thought about that until right now where did that movie split in half where did they end mm, it i just watched the blu-ray but i'll tell you what i hope nobody's dead because of Anything that we did, I've been thinking nonstop about my River Phoenix joke from last episode. So <laughs> I well, he's long gone. So um, where did Todd go? Todd, I don't know. <laughs> can you hear me? I can hear you. Okay. okay. I don't know what happened. <laughs> oh, guys, I'm so sorry. Oh, well, this is why we, we should do more live shows. See, this this is <laughs> this is what happens when you have an unsinkable ship that is cinema shock small things go wrong and then before you know it our ass is up in the air and cracking in half um 
and falling on people and killing them. What's funny about it is <laughs> that when you were talking there, the first thing I thought of is the unsinkable career here is your comedy career. Um, and so <laughs> it just it just won't end. <laughs> I, ironically, the only thing keeping it afloat is the fact that your back half is up in the air. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair that's fair <laughs> well well okay so where we ended I, I don't remember where the vhs of titanic ended but where we ended was we've cast our jack leonardo dicaprio we've cast our rose and kate winslet we have gotten the green light from fox but they, they've given us some conditions and one of those conditions is hey yeah, we're going to give you $110 million, but you've got to have this movie out by next July. You know, that's going to be tough, but we're going to go ahead with the assumption that we're going to release this movie in July of 1997. So by the time that Fox has given the green light, given all these uh, these, these uh, conditions, Cameron, you know, he'd already started scouting locations as if the movie had already been greenlit. He was ready to go, you know. So he eventually decided on a stretch of land and the rundown resort town of Rosarito, Mexico. It's about an hour, hour or so south of the U.S. border. The idea was to build the Titanic set along the shoreline so that they could use the, the real ocean, the distant ocean in the background, the sky, the natural sunlight to all make the scenes on the decks of the Titanic look real. So within two weeks of when Fox gave the project the green light, the set was being built on that stretch of the Baja Peninsula. But it wasn't just a set. It started out as a set. Then Fox is like, hey, we're spending this much money on it. Let's do something a little bit more permanent. So this was actually a major Hollywood studio. Uh, actually, the first major new Hollywood studio built since the 1930s. Uh, Fox decided to take, you know, they, they had all these tanks and stages that were being, that were needed for Titanic. They decided to turn them into a permanent asset for the studio, naming it Fox Studios Baja. Uh, now, it's still there. Uh, it is no longer owned by Fox. Fox sold it off in 2007. But other films that have used Baja Studios included uh, Tomorrow Never Dies, the James Bond movie, uh, Deep Blue Sea, Pearl Harbor, and Master and Commander, Far Side of the World. Those have all used Baja Studios, which uh, would, would not have been possible without James Cameron and Titanic. Interestingly enough, Deep Blue Sea crossover with Titanic would have been a lot of fun. It would have been fun. <laughs> the crew had about 100 days to build a 40-acre facility that housed five sound stages, the world's largest outdoor filming tank, the world's largest indoor filming tank, the world's tallest sound stage, a wardrobe building, an actor's building, multiple offices, and mills. A hundred days. That's just over three months to build all of this. It wouldn't be long before that same crew was building a nearly full-sized facsimile of the real Titanic as well. Uh, Cameron had once again recruited Peter Lamont. Remember him? We talked about in previous episodes in this series, the famed British production designer who'd worked with him on Aliens and True Lies. Uh, he comes back along to help design this Titanic. Now, Lamont, at this point, he was in his like late 60s. Uh, he was considering retirement, but he could not pass up the chance to recreate one of the most famous vessels of all time. Uh, he and Cameron designed a 10-story, 775-foot version of the Titanic built to scale, uh, except with about a 60 to 80-foot section from the middle of the ship removed so that it could actually fit onto the land that Fox owned. Uh, so they, they had to cut little bits and pieces out of it 
but you you'd never tell. I thought it looked a little small, but I thought, you know, the water's cold. Okay. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, and these guys were not fooling around when it came to building this Titanic. When Lamont had his first meeting with Cameron about the design of the film and the ship, Cameron said, This is the Titanic, no compromise. And that's a stance that they held throughout the production. So you got to think they're 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 building this, and you, we know James Cameron. He's a stickler for details. He wants everything to be as historically accurate as possible. But none of these props existed, and because they would be wrecked by the end of production, they couldn't be rented. They couldn't rent like you know the china, for instance, or or, or the you know, the silverware because by the end of the movie they would be completely wrecked. They'd be underwater. They'd be destroyed. So they had actually had to manufacture them. Everything on set was created with the utmost attention to detail. The china, the furniture, all the way down to the ashtrays, which have like the white star logo on them. The, the silverware has the white star logo on them. These were all accurate reproductions of the items that were on the actual Titanic. Uh, the carpet patterns were actually obtained from the original manufacturer who still had the designs in their files. Oh, so, wow. Yeah. Jeez. Uh, you know, and they, and they couldn't like, half-assed this stuff you know when they're building these sets like building let's say the, the the grand staircase which is one of the big sets of the film they used actual wood they used oak because if you know a lot of movie sets are built with lesser materials they're mm -hmm. built with foam they're built with you know plastic and, and rubber and things that are cheaper to produce that then you just paint them to make them look like wood or whatever well you can't do that when you're going to be wrecking the set with water because certain things float a certain way right so you yeah. have to have real wood to make the destruction of that real wood look real and because very few photos of the titanic's interior existed the sets were mostly based on its sister ship a ship called the the olympic which was almost an exact replica of the titanic only a little bit smaller and the book that Cameron used to sell the movie, which we talked about in our last episode, uh, that became the set Bible. And Cameron actually invited its authors to walk the decks when the ship was under was under construction to kind of to get their approval, but also kind of to like show off like, hey, look what I'm doing. Like, you yeah, know. <laughs> I appreciate that you're willing to say that. But yeah, yeah like it's a. Uh... Well, and they even got like, I mean, God, like a uh, well and Devitt company uh, who who manufactured the original Devitts. The it was like the pulleys that the lifeboats were attached to. Mm -hmm. uh, they came through and built like stuff off their old designs. Like this was he was dead set on making this fucking thing as historically accurate as possible, whether or not anybody would notice. I mean, people do. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> So one way that the, the film Titanic differed from the real Titanic was that it was only half a ship. So during the build, they only completed one side of the ship, just to kind of to save on costs, uh, because it's a huge construction project. Uh, then to create the illusion of the other side of the ship, Cameron would actually flip the film picture in post-production, which required every sign, uniform, and logo to be created in a mirror image, which is much cheaper than building the other half of the ship. It's annoying because they talked about like uh, uh, in the opening stuff, like where they're on the harbor, they ended up like, ah, shit, like that the side that would have been attached to the harbor is not the side we have. Right. And so, <laughs> yeah. they, so they had to like work to like flip the the side of the ship, you know, like. To yeah, Cameron was determined to have it facing the right way when it was docked. And one reason that they had to build it facing the other way was because of the direction of the prevailing winds where they were filming in Mexico. Like the prevailing winds would would blow in a certain direction and that would blow the smoke coming out of the smokestacks, which would give the illusion of movement, right? Mm. 
So, but then Cameron, you know, he, because he's is, is a stickler for accuracy, he wanted the correct side of the ship facing the dock. So in the scenes where they're, where the ship is docked, if you look at behind the scenes footage and stuff like that, every shot had to be flipped. Like all the, the, uh, the crew members, their uniforms and everything were produced as a mirror image. Uh, it's wow. pretty wild. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. So while all these enormous sets are being built in Mexico, Cameron was back on the Keldish off the coast of Halifax, back on the Russian ship, mm. uh, where he would shoot the present day scenes with Bill Paxton and Gloria Stewart. You know, not he's back on the ship that took him below the surface of the Titanic, but now he is actually filming on the ship as a set. Because Cameron really wants to be on the research ship. That's all. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. really what it is. <laughs> So along for this shoot were Cameron's trusted Steadicam operator, Jimmy Muro. We've talked about him in previous episodes. And then a new team member, cinematographer Caleb Deschanel, who is, yes, he is the father of Emily and Zoe Deschanel, in case you were wondering. What? All right. And and his wife, Mary Jo Deschanel, she's an actress as well. She's in Twin Peaks. Uh, So, yeah, a whole Hollywood family here. But uh, Deschanel was a well-established award-winning cinematographer who was known for his uh, beautiful natural lighting on films like The Natural and The Right Stuff, uh, which made him kind of perfect for a a period piece like Titanic. Mm. And another new hire on the film, another new member of Cameron's crew, and one that proved to be very important to Titanic's success, was a 35-year-old producer named John Landau. Uh, Landau had been with uh, 20th Century Fox for the last five years before this as an executive vice president of feature production. So he and Cameron had worked together on that level. And then at the Strange Days premiere, which we we mentioned in a previous episode that James Cameron produced and did some uncredited writing on, uh, at the premiere of that film, Landau kind of offhandedly mentioned to Cameron that he was considering going back to producing. Uh, And there are some people that say that he said that just because he specifically wanted to work on Titanic that he was going to go back from being an executive to a producer just so he could work on Titanic but who knows yeah uh, and he's got a great resume I mean when he was working for Fox as a VP he had worked with uh, Michael Mann on Last of the Mohicans he had worked with John Woo on Broken Arrow Jan DeBont on Speed and then before he was an executive he had worked as a co-producer on Honey I Shrunk the Kids and on Dick Tracy you know big money makers wow Cameron uh, discussed it with Ray Sancini and the two, you know, they'd had a good experience with Landau on True Lies when he was working on an executive level. They liked the guy. So they decided to bring him on as a producer on Titanic. And he very quickly became Cameron's right hand man, the guy who would help him solve a lot of the film's logistical problems. I mean, more so than a lot of producers are all about making the movie, working with the studio, making sure the director is working within a budget and things like this. Landau really was on Cameron's side for the entire movie. Like he was there for the greater good of the movie itself. So, all right, we're back on the Keldish, right? So they're shooting what seems to be probably the most straightforward section of the film, right? The the wraparound scenes. Mm. But even this, the first thing they shot in the movie, uh, other than the underwater stuff, but the first thing they shot with, you know, actors and stuff, even this kind of started off on a rough note when, 90% of the crew, including James Cameron, became violently ill after eating bowls of mussel chowder that had been delivered by a caterer. So this all began when Gloria Stewart stand in. They were were helping line up a shot with Gloria Stewart stand in, and uh, her eyes rolled back into her head, and she fell to the floor. So Cameron uh, immediately suspected the chowder 
assuming it was food poisoning. Uh, he ran off to the men's room. He thinks he's got he's going to induce vomiting so that he doesn't get sick, which he does. He uh, says he he says his like bowl was like changing shape, <laughs> like, and he and so he he said he noticed that like it was yeah things got blurry and weird and then the bowl started changing shape and yeah so so, yeah. so he's like I'm going to get this out of my system. He goes to the bathroom. He he and he makes himself throw up basically. Uh, when he returned to set, he was kind of like disoriented, moving very slowly, and he looks around at the set and this like. It's everything. It's just weird, just fucking weirdness happening, right? Yeah. Uh, and everyone's getting sick. Everyone's like off. Everyone's acting strange. Uh, every those who had not eaten the chowder began taking everyone else to the hospital. And it's at the hospital that things got really, really weird. There were people in the in the hallways of the hospital, and and this is a really small hospital in like Nova Scotia, right? There's like one doctor and one nurse. Yeah. Know? Uh, this isn't like a big hospital. You've got people in the, in the hallways moaning and crying, wailing, collapsing on gurneys. Uh, it's just like total, absolute chaos. Jeez. Caleb Deschanel, the cinematographer, he was there. He was leading a conga line in the hallway. Uh, Jimmy Miro was demanding to speak to a priest. Uh, so Cameron started to think maybe this isn't food poisoning. He started to think maybe somebody had like spiked the chowder maybe there was some kind of street drug that had been put into the chowder so at one point they're in the waiting room this hospital cameron looks over and he saw his second ad uh, her name is christy sills she's talking to the doctors because she, she's kind of taking point like she's like somebody needs to talk to the doctors figure out what's going on and i'm going to take charge so she's doing that she He's, calls james sorry to jump in justin he he actually like in one thing i read said this was like when he was realizing things were going weird, like they were, he describes this as on set. Like this is like, it started called, getting weird earlier. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm going uh, by the, um, the recollections that were in the, uh, the Paula Parisi book, the T Titanic and the making of James Cameron. Where yeah. In, in about one it of the, in I think it was in the blockbuster podcast. The, mm -hmm. um, the, they, they're saying that he, he said he was, talking to her on set he saw her and he called her on the walkie yeah and it was like chrissy what are you doing and she says well i'm i'm talking to the doctors and blah 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 and he's like you know that i am talking to you on your walkie and i am standing right in front of you yeah at which point <laughs> she uh basically lunged at him they're like they're they're a few feet away from each other. She lunges at him and stabbed him in the face with her pen. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So, jeez. <laughs> he said she was just like standing there, like talking to people, like that and, weren't there. And she thought it was the doctor. <laughs> yeah, and she thought it was like she. He called her and was like, "What are you doing?" And she's like, "I'm talking to the doctors right now." And he's like, "You're right in front of me." Uh, yeah. Kind of... <laughs> uh, so they, they did run a toxicology report later that showed that a, a pound of PCP had been dumped into the caterer's soup. Whoa. Uh, <laughs> and there are a lot of theories about who did this, but to this day, to my knowledge, the mystery of who spiked the stoop still remains. People think it was maybe a disgruntled uh, crew member. People think it was maybe just a disgruntled person in, you know, in Nova Scotia, the caterer, like a, one of the caterers' employees or something like that. 
Uh, but nobody really knows. They, they never yeah, found Cameron out. Cameron had a theory that like it was like somebody tried to get back into him that like uh, he had fired a crew member the day before. Yeah. Because the catering company had said that he was causing problems with them. And so he mm. fired the crew member. And uh, so they think his I think working theory was that it was this guy caused a problem with the caterers. And 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 it worked because then camera Cameron also fired the catering company the next day. So yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah. I guess technically uh they won, but it was just I and, don't know. And it's and weird. Jared Leto's never mentioned it ever since, right? <laughs> oh, it's weird. Uh, yeah. You know, maybe it was Jared Leto. That, that's so weird. I bet it was. <laughs> So after a couple of weeks working in Halifax, uh, Cameron fired Caleb Deschanel, the cinematographer. Uh, oh, they had Zoe. butted, yeah. Well, they had butted heads. Uh, Cameron, you'll you'll notice something about James, about James Cameron, in that there are a lot of crew members that you'll see popping up from one movie to the next. Cinematographers aren't necessarily one of those, and I think it's because James Cameron is very hands-on, much more hands-on than a lot of cinematographers are used to. That was certainly the case with Caleb Deschanel, uh, you know, because James Cameron could be a cinematographer on his own, you know, so he knows how to do your job and he's telling you how to do it instead of just saying, hey, this is how we're going to shoot this shot. He's saying, let's put a light here, let's put a light here, let's use this film stock, let's use this F-stop, blah, blah, blah. He's telling you how to do your job because he knows how to do it. And that was more than I think Deschanel can handle. So they butted heads a lot over that. And then Cameron decided he needed a cinematographer who was more comfortable with him, someone he had worked with before maybe. So he ended up bringing on Russell Carpenter who had worked with him on True Lies. I think it's one of those things, like I think I said this last episode too, or not last episode, um, but but in the episode we're talking about on True Lies, that um, sometimes there's just these leaders of a situation that like if you're going to work for them they tell you a thing and they just expect you to do the thing your your job's never to argue with that it's never to push back if they want discussion they will ask you for a discussion but otherwise it's just uh it's just from personal experience i'm saying like sometimes they're just like hey this is what i want and then your job is to be like okay i'm going to do everything i can to make sure that that is the thing that happens and you know they don't want you to discuss it any further than that right exactly yeah. <laughs> yep so when cameron uh returned from halifax to mexico the sets were nearly complete uh lamont had reproduced titanic perfectly like cameron was very pleased with with how things were looking uh and these sets are enormous they're so big in fact that crew members would often get lost in them and have to call for help to get out uh like they would get lost in the set uh <laughs> and they eventually had to create like a zone system that helped them kind of map out sections of the ship so they can say, like, hey, I'm in zone two. Uh, help. <laughs> you know, get me out of here. Uh, and the, the set would also be swarmed with, you know, up to 2,000 people on some days. When you when you had a bunch of extras in, uh, like the scene of the dock, like you had almost 2,000 people there. On one, you had nearly, uh, nearly 1,500 people run towards the aft of the tilted ship in one of the most ambitious and dangerous scenes of the entire shoot. Uh, the act of the sinking itself was a technical marvel that Cameron achieved with the help of this physical effects supervisor, Tommy Fisher. So the Titanic set was created to where when it stood on its end, it, it could actually move from one position to the other. The set could, uh, just like we see in the movie. And when it stood on its end, it would be over 700 feet tall. Jeez. 
And Cameron's idea, of course, once it's on its end, then it has to sink. So his idea was to lower it on cables into a deep pit in the tank itself, which is to think about that now is crazy because obviously now you make this movie, this is all CGI. Yeah. Uh, but one of the weirdest parts about like this, as we further go down the Cameron trail here, is that uh, I think one of the biggest mistakes in movie history was that he didn't take some of his like fucking billions of dollars and create like a James Cameron museum or something. Right. That, like all of this shit goes to because every single fucking movie just has ridiculous stuff this ship by the way i think ends up getting sold for scrap metal or something yeah. so so it's just like god dang it like what i don't know it's just like can you buy like fucking some acres in mexico somewhere or something and yeah. like just display the fucking technical marvel you've created or, yeah right? it's it's, yeah. it's crazy but that that's that's the movie business honestly a lot of the stuff just gets destroyed some of the most difficult nights of the shoot on Titanic were uh, on the tilting poop deck, which is a piece of the set that would move from horizontal to completely vertical. You know, this is the area of the ship where uh, at the end of the movie, Jack and Rose are hanging on to as the ship goes down into the ocean. Mm. Do we need to take a break for any poop deck jokes? I mean, I, I, I was hoping to get past that before you guys did. But, you know, if you've got something on hand, go for it. I mean, I was just curious. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, Todd, what is a what does a clown's fart smell like? I don't know. What does a clown's fart smell like? Well, they smell funny. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, so the uh, the stunt coordinator on Titanic was a guy named Simon Crane. So Crane, like most stunt coordinators, had started off as a stunt man. Uh, he even worked, he actually worked on James Cameron's aliens. He was one of the xenomorphs, although he, he doesn't think James Cameron knew who he was because he was in a xenomorph outfit the whole time, right. <laughs> but, but he was on aliens. Uh, he had also been the guy who did that big, you know, the big airplane stunt in cliffhanger where the, where, where, uh, characters like zip lines from one plane to another. Yeah. It's yeah. One of the craziest stunts you'll ever see in a movie. And at the time, I think it was the most expensive stunt of all time. He, that's him. That's Simon Crane. Oh, we wow. may have had an episode talking about some of this. Yeah, back in our old show, back in a, a previous life. In a previous life. Yeah, but uh, that was when he was a stuntman. But as a stunt coordinator, he had recently caught a lot of attention for coordinating the battle scenes in Mel Gibson's Braveheart. Oh. Uh, as it so happens, Cameron had found himself in the market for a new stunt coordinator. Uh, we mentioned before Joel Kramer. We talked about him uh, extensively, I think, on our True Lies episode. He had been the stunt coordinator on both Terminator 2 and True Lies. Uh, one thing we didn't mention, though, is that there had actually been an accident on the set of True Lies when a stuntman suffered serious burns on his arms because Kramer had wanted to use this new body gel uh, instead of regulation stunt wear, kind of against Cameron's wishes. Uh, mm -hmm. It was actually the first time that emergency medical treatment had been required on the set of one of James Cameron's films, which he was pretty upset about, because uh, believe it or not, despite the fact that James Cameron kind of comes across as a daredevil, you know, he likes to ride motorcycles in the desert and shit like that uh, in his free time. But he's actually a sucker for safety, especially on the sets of his movies. He prided himself on keeping his sets as safe as possible for both the cast and the crew. Uh, so that kind of left a bad taste in his mouth. So when Simon Crane's bid on Titanic came in lower than Kramer's, it made that choice pretty easy for him. Mm. Also, hopefully, you know, Simon Crane less 
interested in young girls. Less interested in yeah. 12 year old girls. Yeah, I would hope so. <laughs> so there was, yeah, he's got that working for him. But uh, Titanic, you know, for a movie that's generally considered a romance, I mean, it is packed with stunts. And that, uh, that tilting poop deck scene is the most ambitious stunt in the entire film. Do so we this, need to talk anymore about? I don't think so. Day. No. <laughs> All right. So, <laughs> just curious. So uh, this set, what do um, what do flies politely say to each other, Todd? I I don't know, Gary. What do flies politely say to each other? Is this stool taken? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. That's no, a good one. Is it? Is it? I, so I was set. just I was just curious if anybody's ready for a poop joke. I know most of them stink, but oh, <laughs> that's all the time we have on. Uh, we're talk. done. I we're like done. poop jokes. I think they're the shit. But... <laughs> <laughs> anyway, oh god, oh man, where was I? I don't even remember. All right, so we're on the we're on we're doing the um the sequence where the the Titanic's sinking, right? Yeah. So what this set. Which was it was tilted using hydraulics, which is a process that took several days. They actually had to. Uh, it took like I don't know five or six days to get from a vertical to a horizontal position, which they actually did over Christmas break. I think <laughs> they 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 used that time to let it tilt the whole time. So once it was vertical, one hundred stunt performers would be dangling and jumping from it. It was a stunt that the stunt crew had rehearsed for weeks because any mishap could be potentially fatal. I uh, mean, you get seriously injured. You you could die if you if you did it wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the end, there were a couple of injuries, uh, all, all kind of on the same night because this, this went on for several days. But uh, there was one stunt man who broke his leg. Another stunt woman missed her landing and hit a piece of the set. She broke a rib. Another. Are we, stunt... sure, are we sure Joel Kramer wasn't there? <laughs> when, that's, uh... that's like his mo, right? Is it? Elashadushku didn't she break a rib? Oh, she like did that? break a rib. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah. But no, he wasn't mm. there. Uh, and another stunt woman broke a cheekbone. So uh, there were injuries all like kind of back to back to back. And this kind of concerned James Cameron. Uh, he he got started to get worried that the way they were doing this stunt might be a little too dangerous. So he hops on the phone. He calls Rob Legato. Rob Legato was uh, supervising the film's visual effects at Digital Domain. He asked him if there's anything that you guys can do to pull this scene off. As it happens, Legato was on the verge of creating realistic CGI people using motion capture. Now, do you guys know what I mean when I say motion capture? Do we know what motion capture is? Yes, I do. Yeah. Yeah. It was that Tom Tom Hanks Christmas movie. Yeah, like yeah. the Tom Hanks Christmas movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly right. So uh it's it's basically where you take a you've got an actor, you're uh recording their movements, an actor's movements into a computer and then you're creating a digital version of that person or whatever uh it, the, it's, the tom it, hanks christmas movie took it too far uh yeah, James yeah, Cameron yeah. knew how to how to expertly apply it yeah yeah i mean and and then he uses it more you know it gets used down the line and uh i think the the biggest the most extensive use directly after this was lord of the rings with Gollum, mm-hmm. uh and then of course even avatar further on down the line uh peter jackson's uh King Kong used it a lot. I mean, Peter Jackson is a, and, and Weta are on the forefront of motion capture, uh, and they'll actually be involved in Avatar when we talk about that one. But well, when they show like full shots of the ship, like the Titanic, like going down, uh, one of the big important parts for camera work was he wanted to show um, Titanic in its full like 
majesty, like serving its purpose, doing what its right. thing was. So we're talking like in the first, you know, like after the underwater stuff, yeah. like the first, you know, 30 minutes or so of the movie. But when it's showing it just like after it leaves port, like it's just going downstream. There's like it's it's a model Titanic and it's got get these CGI people. They end up going back and throwing them on this model. Yeah. Of the thing. Um, I thought that it, was kind of cool. Like it how works much really people... well. I mean, you if you're looking for it, you can tell that they're not real people, but you have to be trying to like zero in on that. Yeah, yeah. Well, he yeah. does like enough enough cuts that it's like he'll show like one of the officers walking out onto the deck to go like talk to another officer, but then like quickly cut to the officers to the actual to people. Yeah. yeah, and so it, it works really really well. He also did really cool things. I it's just side note, just how significant detail is to him is just that like i mean even that opening stuff with the the dolphins going along yeah uh, the bow of the ship like going on he was just like that's the thing that happens dolphins do that and so i wanted to really include that so they yeah. had like filmed like uh some of the scenes with like even a navy vessel like going along and they replaced it with the titanic and yeah had had actual dolphins and so, i don't know anyway just the fucking guy he's he's so detail oriented he really it's, is so weird those extras you were talking about not to even jump in uh, more like I am just being rude, <laughs> interrupting you. Um, but I mean, reportedly like, like 150 of those extras that were on there, he gave them all like individually, like stories of 150 people that were on the Titanic. Yeah. yeah and, and a lot of the extras were using, they, they went to like, uh, they, they were coached on how to, like they let's say the first class people in first class if you were an extra you were coached on etiquette and things like that right uh, even if you were just going to be in the background you might not even be on screen at all how you to know? speak how to move uh, yeah. what yeah. to wear like exactly how, yeah like they had so, classes on how to do this stuff right but as far as the motion capture stuff like this had motion capture was a very new technology and it had been used before this but never on characters that were meant to look human like to look like real people uh, and Legato, he he assured Cameron that he could create CGI CGI stunt people, basically, uh, though it would be several months before he could produce the results. And now, digital stunt, stuntman now, in the year of 2022, when we're recording this, that, that's pretty normal on big-budget films, mm -hmm. uh, which is yet another thing that James Cameron was on the forefront of technologically. Um, now, as, as far as the actual stunt people go, you know, like many other people in the film, Simon Crane, he felt Cameron's wrath on this film, like a lot of other crew members do. Uh, there's there's a, a story at one point. There's a stunt involving men trying to clamber onto a capsized life raft. You know, this life raft gets washed over the side of the ship, and these guys are trying to scramble onto it while it's in the water. And it, the stunt wasn't going the way that Cameron wanted it to. Uh, it was a difficult stunt, and it took about two hours to prepare every single time they needed to do a take. Uh, which was expensive on a film like this. And over mm. the course of about a day and a half, that stunt ha alone had cost the film about $500,000, half a million bucks. Jeez. So Cameron's losing his patience at this point. He's screaming at Simon Crane. He says, you said you could do this. What is wrong with them? Do it now. Uh, and Cameron replied, you're lucky that they got it over, meaning the lifeboat, which had to be flipped in the water in the tank that they were in. To which Cameron said, what do you mean we're lucky? That's their job. So Crane, they're on set, right? They're on set. He yells across the set, go fuck yourself to James Cameron. Oh, <laughs> and this is in front of the entire crew. So Cameron is livid. 
Like, and he's fine with crew members disagreeing with him, uh, bringing their, you know, issues to him, but he wants it to be done in private, you know, not shouted in front of 30 other crew members, which completely undermines his authority. So Cameron says, you know what? You're fired. They're on set. Fires him. Uh, Crane stormed away from the set uh, and the 60 people, uh, 60 stunt people who worked under him on Titanic followed him in solidarity. Uh, eventually, Crane uh, came to Cameron to apologize, thanks to John Landau doing a great job as a producer, uh, mm-hmm. because he knew that hi- losing an entire stunt team is going to cost a lot of money. And he didn't relish telling that to 20th Century Fox. So he facilitated this. Uh, Cameron wanted Crane to apologize in front of everybody. That didn't end up happening. Crane ended up apologizing to Cameron in private, saying, you know, things got heated. We went too far. Uh, and that was good enough for Cameron. Crane was able to save face in, in front of his stunt guys and all was a, as well as it could have gone after that, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but but they didn't lose their stunt crew. But yeah, uh, it, it came very, very close to that. All right. So another another scene that was a difficult one to shoot, uh, the, the, the scene where DiCaprio and Winslet kiss on the bow of the ship. You know, the big, the big scene. Yeah, uh, after he farted in his... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Cameron was determined to do this during a real sunset, not on in front of like a green screen. They had eight days of shooting daylight scenes in which to capture it. So there are days that they're shooting during the day. One of these days, we're going to get this right at sunset. Uh, and an hour before dusk, every night, Cameron would go out, he'd look at the quality of the sky to see if it was kind of dramatic enough for his background, for what he was looking for. Uh, and then day after day passed, and the sky just wasn't up to snuff. Fuck you, sky. You're not doing what I want you to do. I'm James Cameron. <laughs> like, <laughs> do, do what I want you to do. Uh, but they kept rehearsing the scene over and over and over so that when the day came, if the sky looked the way it wanted, they'd be able to jump right into it. You know, they were ready for it. Mm. And uh, on the final day, the last day that they had of daytime shoots, because most of this movie was shot at night, Cameron managed to get the shot, but just barely. It kind of looked like, you know, they walked out that day. It looked like it was going to be a cloudy day. But just at the last minute, the sun burst through the clouds and they were able to grab the shot. Uh, they, they would go back later to shoot close-ups of certain portions of the scene. I mean, there are some some parts of that scene that are shot uh, on stage and things like that. But the the like most iconic scene that you think of when you think of that scene, that was shot during a real sunset in one take. Yeah. Jeez. And it's it's one of the most iconic moments in movie history. But if you look very closely, the scene is a little bit blurry. It's a little bit out of focus. Yeah. Because <laughs> they had to move so quickly, the focus puller had not been able to rehearse. So he was just winging it on, on, and you can't like redo a sunset. <laughs> like yeah. once the sun's down, it's down. Right. So <laughs> it's uh yeah, it, it, it is slightly out of focus. Wow. Yeah. But it's still an incredible shot, you know? Oh yeah. And, and I also love thinking of the fact that, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio was stinky as hell during that. <laughs> uh, and I also, I, I do love this quote from James Cameron, even though he has been one of CGI's biggest champions, uh, he, even he knows that there are limitations. Uh, here, here's a quote from him about this scene. He says, we could do that sunset now easily on green screen and schedule it for a Tuesday morning. But when I imagine that sunset, those particular colors, now we can create whatever we can imagine. But is our imagination up to the task? I don't know. And I think that's that's really great because watching that scene now, knowing that that's a real background, it is 
like that is fucking movie magic. You know, yeah. that is a once in a lifetime moment because it looks incredible. Yeah, it, you know, really, it does. really does. Well, it didn't take long for the budget for Titanic to begin spinning wildly out of control. Um, which is a recurring motif, I think, on the, these yeah. movies. Uh, <laughs> there were constant attempts to rein in spending, even during the construction phase. Uh, for instance, there's a scene where, really short scene, where Rose takes tea with her mother and set in a first-class lounge that's only seen in that one single scene. So to build that lounge accurately would have cost about 250 grand, a quarter million dollars. So they decided not to do that for one scene, and they filmed the actors in front of a green screen. Right. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and Cameron would take a lot of heat for his spending on Titanic. But the truth of it is that he compromised a lot. He took out parts of scenes or he changed his construction plans all in an attempt to save money. He was trying to save money on this. Like there are so many reports of him just like he was just throwing money out into the wind. But he is very conscious of what's being spent. But on a movie of this size, some things just aren't going to come cheap. You know, yeah. uh, one of the big, biggest expenses on this film was something that a lot of viewers would never think about. And that was lights, light bulbs, you know, <laughs> like oh, Titan- yeah. Titanic has over 600 portholes, each of which required a light. Because when you're shooting it from the outside, you need that light coming through the window. Right. Yeah. Uh, then there are practical lights on set, all the lamps, the sconces, all the stuff that you see on the sets. And the production ordered more than 40 miles of cable, more than 1,000 movie lights, more than 1,000 practical lights. And Fox got wind of this and said that you guys aren't spending this money, right? You're not using your resources correctly. So they sent some of their lighting experts down to Mexico uh, who you know walked around set, got a view of everything. And you know what they said? The movie doesn't have enough lights. <laughs> <laughs> So it wasn't like they were just spending this money just to spend it, you know? Yeah. But those excessive costs had started to be reported in the media. Uh, Titan, or I'm sorry, Variety actually started a regular column called Titanic Watch that was all about the the production of this movie. Uh, Time Magazine ran an article with the headline, Glub, 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 Can James Cameron's Extravagant Titanic Avoid Disaster? There were plenty of other headlines that all talked about, the the word sinking was there a lot, we should just say. Uh, And not helping matters was the July 1995 release of Kevin Costner's Waterworld, a film film whose $170 million price tag had actually knocked True Lies out of its top spot as the most expensive movie ever made. Waterworld, though, was a major flop both financially and critically, although I think Waterworld is fine. <laughs> like I personally, I think it's fine. I, I think it got a lot of shit because of the amount of money that w- was being spent at the time. Uh, but I mean, it's basically Mad Max on the ocean, you know, mm-hmm. uh, but it's a fine movie, but it, it did not do well. So that, and, and of course, Titanic being another massively expensive film set on the water was inevitably going to be compared to it. Yep. Yeah, it's it's weird. Like word of mouth, especially during that time, was so much more important. So, oh yeah, it was, this, is, it was... this is really pre-internet. I mean, internet was very much in its early, early, early phases, and most people didn't have it yet. You know, yeah, which is yeah, because I guess technically saying that it sounds stupid because yeah, like now on the internet, word of mouth is super important. But I mean, just like at that time, like you had to rely on literal word of mouth. So it's Cameron for all the shit that he gets about his budgets, he was concerned about the budget. Like he didn't want to overspend or anything, you know, he even met with Fox president, Bill mechanic, and he offered to give Fox back both his front end fee and his entire share of the back end. 
And Bill Mechanic refused, saying that it was noble but hollow because he didn't expect the film to make a dime. So that's <laughs> that's going to come back to bite him. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the shoot itself, which was planned initially for a 135 days, which is a pretty lengthy shoot, turned into a 165-day shoot. As it ground on into months six and seven, everyone involved in this movie was exhausted. Everyone was exhausted. They'd been working you know, uh, fast paced, working in water. Like this is a very, very difficult, you know, you're in freezing water. You're in, you're, you're getting pummeled by waves. It it is an incredibly difficult shoot. Uh, The sinking, the sinking sequences were particularly hard on the cast and crew because of all the elements involved, all the water and things like that. Like they're, they're basically submerged for days on end and DiCaprio and Winslet obviously as the stars of the movie got the worst of it, at least among the actors. Uh, They spent a lot of their time running through flooded sets or being submerged in water. uh, And they dealt with it in their own ways. Like Kate Winslet initially wanted the water to be cold to help her with her performance. Uh, She changed her mind later on, (laughs) Uh, uh, but Leo as a steady cam operator, Jimmy Miro put it quote was such a pussy. He wanted heated water. Leo with the good reputation. <laughs> it's really uh, okay for him because most of most of his current girlfriends wouldn't have been born at this time. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, wow, Gary, I've never heard anybody make that joke. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. Okay. So low hanging fruit, but I'm yeah. not stand up here. So it counts that's right. You're not writer comedian. That's I'm right. <laughs> uh, well, um, Leo hemmed and hawed a lot about having to work in the water, but Kate Winslet, on the other hand, never really complained despite her her discomfort. And although she was never in any physical danger, uh, because like like they had on the abyss, you know, they had uh, safety divers on the set of the Titanic. But the production left her shaken, uh, especially in a sequence where her and DiCaprio are running. They're running along the flooding ship and they're blocked by a a closed gate. You know the scene I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. Uh, During the filming of that scene, her coat got snagged on the gate and she was actually stuck underwater, unable to breathe. Oh, no. Like she got stuck. She she couldn't get up because her coat was holding her down. Yeah, so it was a little scary for her. And she would later say that Titanic was uh, the first time in her life that she'd been on a film set and think, I wish I wasn't here. Oh, now, wow. granted, she we, we've talked about this in previous episodes. A lot of times when James Cameron's actors get interviewed in immediately following the shoot, they have things like this to say. Ed Harris was the same way on The Abyss. But they later, you know, once that all kind of wears off, they they have nicer things to say. Kate Winslet is very appreciative of her time on the Titanic. It made her career. I mean, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And- I mean, there, there's this weird stuff. Like, I mean, like James Cameron doesn't believe in bathroom breaks, apparently. And uh, so they had to like let it go in the water sometimes. Yeah. I and- think we talked about that on True Lies. Ooh. Yeah. So. Uh, and, and a lot of the people came down with colds, flu, kidney infections after they were in the cold water, yeah. uh, including Kate Winslet. Um, I think she got mild hypothermia. Yeah. Well, they were wearing hip waders at first. And then after several incidents, uh, the, those filled with water. So they switched to wetsuits. Um, Kate Winslet obviously couldn't wear a wetsuit for a lot of her scenes. Yeah. And so she ended up with like hypothermia, uh, a lot of people left, you know, the stuntmen that broke bones and, and people were just exhausted. And so, yeah, uh, absolutely draining shoot for everybody. 
Winslet said like in one interview, like, yeah, yeah there were just days you woke up and you were like, please, God, just let me die. <laughs> it's just like, I don't want to be here anymore. I don't want to be here anymore. I don't want to be here anymore. Uh, <laughs> and and James Cameron was not immune to this. I mean, and once the shoot was done, he had to, he still had to face the monster ahead of him that was post-production. Uh, and he was ex- just like many of the cast and crew. He was exhausted. He was drained probably more than anyone else because as we've talked about, James Cameron is not going to ask anyone to do anything that he's not willing to do. He is in there in the shit, you know, like in the scene where uh, what the last scene that they filmed in this was the scene of the captain going down with the ship. Uh, they they shot Bernard Hill's scene earlier, you know, of him walking into the bridge, but the scene with the uh, where the glass actually breaks, yeah, the water rushes in. That was obviously not Bernard Hill. That was a stuntman, and James Cameron was the cameraman for that scene. Yeah, he was there with like a breathing he was there regulator, wear, wearing a wetsuit, breathing regulator, handheld camera, and that water rushed in and it hit him. Put it, you know, it basically threw him against the wall. Like he is, he is getting in the shit on this more than anyone else or as much as anyone else, you know? Yeah. So that, that actually went well, but that's, that's where I was thinking on last episode, I was going to talk about tequila because he talked about like just being there. Uh, It was an all night shoot. Uh, They were making up for lost time. He had like emergency oxygen in case he had to supply it to the stump man. Cause they weren't sure, but it all ended up going. Okay. Uh, and then afterwards they had like a rapping party and, uh, whoever was still left, James Cameron hung out with them. And, uh, he said he finished half a bottle of tequila <laughs> and, uh, he's finally said, okay, it's time for me to go home. Yeah. And he was already asleep by the time, uh, he got to the van before it even left the studio, <laughs> <laughs> but he still had a lot. He still had a long road ahead of them. I mean, he, he had enough footage for a four hour movie. At this point, he was wildly over budget and everyone assumed that this movie wasn't going to make a dime. This his his movie. His passion project was the laughingstock of Hollywood. And it wasn't even out yet. It wasn't even finished yet. And he was already the, kind of the laughingstock. He was the butt of a lot of jokes, you know, mm. and he it's, still had to go through pre-production with that in mind. Do you think this is because he's got like such a, an ego or is it because. I don't know. Like, I mean, I dude, if you read like the articles that were coming out at the time, like everyone was shitting on this movie, yeah. thinking it was just going to be a yeah. Well, it's disaster. like it's like it's popular to like be cynical about something when somebody's so like gung ho about something. And yeah. so I'm just curious of like a lot of his. Maybe now it's not the time, but I'm just kind of thinking like, I wonder if like people at this time like because this movie got so much press go like before the movie was even fucking done. It's like, are these people just, they just want it to fail because fuck this guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I don't, I really, I really, don't, I don't know what, I mean, obviously we they, fig- all, they figure his numbers up. It. He he's had such, he's had s- such success so far. They're like, okay, this is it. He's bitten off more than he can chew. Yeah. Maybe, maybe that was the, the thought behind it. Yeah. Well, Titanic would be the first film where James Cameron received an editor credit. Uh, he had tinkered around with editing on aliens and true lies. Uh, but on Titanic, he was actually a full-fledged and credited member of the editing team, which also included Richard Harris, who had worked with Cameron on True Lies, and eventually Conrad Buff, who had been uh, working with the director since The Abyss. For the special effects, it it became clear that this was going to be far too large of a project for digital domain to do alone, especially with a looming summer release date. Uh, the production expanded from one effects house to 17 effects houses Jeez. in order to speed things along. 
uh, which I, I don't think we mentioned it on our True Lies episode, but tr- you know it, it's kind of commonplace now for a, a multiple special effects houses to be used mm-hmm. for for a movie. True Lies was actually the first film ever to use multiple special effects houses. Huh. Yeah, I thought I that was interesting. That. Yeah, another first for James Cameron, yeah. like a first among many. Although he does claim credit a lot of times too, because I, I saw some interviews with him and he kind of implied that I was like, oh yeah, you know, we did. We did most stuff. People, you know, people had to put some like fog in their breath because they're in the cold. <laughs> you know, yeah. like he, he, he did not seem to want to say like, you, you know what I mean? Like he was, he was just he, like the digital domain did the most of it, right? Yeah. Right? Yeah. But yeah, I don't know. Seventeen film houses. I don't think they were all doing fog breath. <laughs> so uh by May of that year, it was pretty obvious that they were not going to hit that July release date. He still had to do ADR with the actors. He still had to score the film. Uh, he still had to do the sound mix. There were still hundreds of unfinished effects shots. So he calls up Fox. He talks to Peter Chernin. He told him that a summer release date, he, he didn't say he couldn't make it, but he said it would compromise the quality of the film. He mm-hmm. never said, I can't do it. He just basically told him, hey, if we're going to try to hit this release date, this is not going to be as good of a movie as it could be. Hey, and that carries a lot of weight, by the way. I saw like where like Harrison Ford had Air Force One coming out in 97, like around uh, like literally on the same date that Titanic was originally scheduled for. Yeah. And when he de- when he found out about it, he demanded that Paramount push the release date to a different time. Yeah. On Air Force One. And the studio agreed because uh, you know, Harrison Ford carried a lot of weight and they were like, sure. Oh, he's never gonna do another movie again. And uh I think when Titanic ends up being released, it's like Kevin Costner's poor Kevin Costner during this time. <laughs> uh, the postman comes out like the same day. Uh, yeah, like that's bomb. rough. That's rough. <laughs> <laughs> well, Fox did end up biting the bullet and they pushed the release date from July to December 19th, which gave Cameron a bit of breathing room to finish the film. Yeah. I, to be honest, it's pretty respectable, especially. Can I get it done? Yes. Is it going to be worth it? Like it probably be, not. <laughs> give us more time and it'll be better. Yeah, yeah. Basically. I, I think know. that's definitely more respectable. I agree. Uh, well, that July, they were originally planning on doing this when Titanic was released, but since the movie got pushed back anyway, they decided to still go ahead with it. But Cameron ended up marrying Linda Hamilton. Oh, uh, we too met- bad. He already met his fourth wife. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, the two had been dating off and on since the filming of Terminator 2, and they they had a daughter together. Uh, and it was it was Cameron's fourth marriage. This was his fourth uh linda hamilton oh okay so uh but like the like the others it would not last (laughs) so uh, we'll get into this next one on our next episode okay for the film's (laughs) music james cameron reunited with james horner who had done the score for aliens now if you listen to that episode you may remember that cameron and horner kind of butted heads on that film because of its rushed production schedule which forced horner to have to write his score in only a couple of weeks when he was supposed to have like seven or eight weeks uh and neither the director nor the composer were satisfied with the end result although i personally think it's a great score and is among horner's best work i think i I think the score for aliens is outstanding oh okay I, I thought you were going to say for Titanic, I was like, they pretty much just use the hook for my heart will go. Well, let's, let's well, get there. Uh, but, let's, yeah, okay. but, also, but also James Horner wrote that. So, okay. Well, yeah. Uh, so <laughs> when, when Cameron called Horner about working on Titanic, the two briefly discussed their history. You know, they both apologized and then it was just kind of considered under the bridge and they moved on to what they wanted to do with this new film or under the boat. 
<laughs> so, who's the comedian or, here? Or <laughs> who's writer comedian? Or over the boat? Or over the boat? In this particular case. All right, I'll give you that uh, one. So That's a uh, point the, for Justin. Point for Justin. <laughs> so the two discuss what Cameron was looking for in a score for Titanic. Uh, you know, Cameron. I think we've mentioned this before. Uh, he likes to listen to music when he's writing a script, you know, something to set the tone for whatever he's working on. Who uh, can say what the <laughs> So when he was writing Titanic, he listened to a lot of Enya. <laughs> so, uh, he had actually, and he had actually reached out to Enya herself about possibly collaborating with a composer for the film's music, but she turned it down saying, I don't do movie projects or something like that you I don't do successful yeah. uh so but that was the feel he was going for with the film's music uh, so when he met with horner horner told him his vision for the sa- for the sound of the film and he said horner said that you're gonna think i'm crazy but i keep hearing something that's a little bit um i almost don't want to say it but a little bit like enya and cameron says oh bullshit somebody told you to say that uh clearly they were either on the same page or someone close to Cameron had maybe let Horner in on what Cameron had been listening to, lately, <laughs> which I think is more likely. <laughs> that feels right. Yeah. So they knew what they did want in the film. They knew they wanted the sound, what kind of sound they wanted. Uh, not a score for a period film necessarily, but something that sounded contemporary without sounding out of place for a movie set in 1912. Something sweeping and emotional fitting of an epic. But one thing Cameron was adamant about with the there, he said, there's not going to be a song, damn it, in my movie. Uh, needle drops just aren't Cameron's thing. You know, he doesn't put songs in his movie, although he did sneak bad to the bone into Terminator 2. That was not the norm for him. And that movie, then that song wasn't written for that movie, obviously. Right. Well, as he was finishing up his score, James Horner became s- kind of stumped. The score he was writing was so big, such an emotional roller coaster that he didn't think anything else he could write for the end credits could hold up to it. He decided to try something intimate with a, with a solo voice. And he, uh, he, he wrote this melody and then he enlisted the help of a lyricist named Will Jennings. And before they knew it, they had a song, which is exactly what Cameron had said was forbidden on his film. Yeah. Well, James Horner had an old friend who he thought would be perfect to sing this song. So he tracked her down. She was in Las Vegas performing. Uh, he sang her the song and she loved it, although she didn't he, he didn't let her know that what they were doing or he did. I'm sorry. He did let her know that what they were doing was kind of clandestine. He was uh, he was basically directly disobeying orders from his director. So they had to kind of keep it all on the down low, you know. Mm. Uh, the singer in Las Vegas was, of course, Celine Dion, uh, a very big star at the time in the mid 90s. Uh, so Horner secretly meets with her in New York and they recorded uh, a demo version of My Heart Will Go On at Sony Studios there. All right. So he's got this copy of this song that he's written, knowing that James Cameron specifically said, I don't want a fucking song in my movie. Uh, And it it, it takes a while before James Horner is able to get the nerve to let Cameron listen to it. He kind of he's he's worked with James Cameron. He knows the guy's moody. He wants to wait till he's in a good mood. Uh, So one day he determined that James Cameron was in a, let's say, less gruff mood than usual. (laughs) So he approached him. He's like. Hey, James, you in a good mood? And Cameron replied, of course not. What's the question? So Horner <laughs> reluctantly played the song for Cameron. And by the time it was over, Cameron had tears in his eyes and he was sold. He absolutely loved the song. He didn't recognize the voice. He's like, who is this? And he said, oh, it's Celine Dion. James Cameron's like, oh, she's kind of 
she's kind of famous, isn't she? It's like not not a guy who listened to a lot of popular music at the time, yeah. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say, like, it feels like you, you were going to pass off Celine Dion as like a Las Vegas lounge singer. No, no, she was just performing <laughs> in Las Vegas. She was yeah. incredibly famous at the time. Yeah. She Although this massive. song is this song is still the biggest thing she's ever done. Yeah, I I, no, 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 hundred percent. She was already like forever platinum at that point, but I'd say this song rocketed her to the moon. Well, except she was already there. So the multiverse, it rocketed Celine Dion into the multiverse. And uh, as a guy seeing the movie for the first time, twenty five years later, I have to admit though, I was watching the movie, and if they had known how big this movie. And that song we're going to be. They might, I don't know. Jamie Horner might have made a few edits somewhere in there. I felt myself, <laughs> I felt myself thinking, uh, if they don't stop playing, my heart will go on during this movie. <laughs> Justin, you're muted. It, it didn't start as my heart will go on. It started as just the love theme, Jack and Rose's love theme, like you normally do in a in a film score, you know. <laughs> so yeah. he he used that melody to write to turn it into my heart will go on right right. i'm just saying like now the song is so ubiquitous that every time you hear it you start singing it in your head you know like i do like every every (laughs) single time it's on screen i'm going (laughs) you know like (laughs) not sing it in my head every single time i saw Um, an interview with kate it's kate winslet before it was like before he really re-released this in 3d which i'm sure we'll talk about some other time but she said in the interview that she dislikes the song my heart will go on she's probably Uh, fucking sick of it celine dion probably hates singing it but it's made her millions of dollars she said uh, kate winslet said i wish i could say oh listen everybody it's the celine dion song but i don't i just have to sit there you know (laughs) kind of straight face with can you imagine internal eye roll can you imagine it haunts me let's say you were out at a restaurant and you look across and there's kate winslet said oh man kate winslet's here look that's cool let's that's cool. And then that song comes on. And what if you made eye contact with brother? <laughs> brother, let me tell you. Did you see the late? I saw it on Reddit. I don't. I should have shared it, and I meant to. Um, but it's like Noel Gallagher at a restaurant, and Wonderwall comes on, <laughs> and the whole restaurant starts singing it at uh, him. I love and it. And he's there with his family. <laughs> like how fucking weird. I love that. <laughs> like it's oh man. Oh, I love that. <laughs> Especially knowing how cranky he is anyway. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Uh, All no, right. No, that's always the thing with like uh even Billy Corgan, like where where like you get into like uh people's attitudes or the stories that come out of like projects people made and the fights mm-hmm. that people had and blah blah blah. And like he one hundred percent one day was just like Everybody fucking loves Oasis and Noel and Liam Gallagher like constantly talk shit about each other. Yeah, like it's, yeah. just, it's just they they, it's they just both life. they both hate half of Oasis. <laughs> <laughs> so uh anyway, the first test screening for Titanic took place of all places in Minneapolis at the Mall of America. Uh and, and here's what here's what they did. So a lot of times when they do these test screenings, it's very like secret. You know, they don't tell people what they're seeing. It's just, hey, do you want to go see a movie for free? And then you have to answer some questions afterwards. Most people are going to say, yes, I'll go see a free movie. They actually told these people that they were seeing great expectations 
the uh, the the Gwyneth Paltrow one, you know, that came out in the late nineties. Oh, okay. They thought they were going to see that. So there was a lot riding on this test screening. Remember, and remember, James Cameron hates test screenings ever since the Abyss. Uh, but he was confident that he had a, a good film. But he also knew that Hollywood and the media seemed to be rooting against him and his film. Uh, they expected, they almost wanted him to fail. So this test screening would be the first time that they got a feel for how general audiences, the ticket buyers, would react to Titanic. And uh, it, it's funny, in, in this book, the, the Titanic and the man- Making of James Cameron, Paula Parisi, she has this weird little anecdote where she interviews this one kid who went to see Titanic at this, and he thought he was going to see Great Expectations, which was not his thing. He was like 15 years old, you know, going to see a, a Great Expectations was not on the top of his list, but he's like, you know, I heard that uh, Gwyneth Paltrow shows her boobies in it, so I was down <laughs> to go see it. <laughs> But uh, he didn't get to see Gwyneth Paltrow's movies, but he didn't get to see Kate Winslet. So there's that. I was about so. to say, and to keep that PG-13, by the way, you, you could do it during the art scene, but you couldn't do it during the car scenes. So right. You can't that. be daring fucking. Yeah, that's you can't be fucking in show boobies. No, they just got to be. But if they just want to display them while laying spread eagle on the fucking couch. Like she wasn't spread eagle. I mean, okay. come on. Well, <laughs> I mean, she could have been. Yeah, they didn't show her from the waist down. That's true. And you know what? I the, the part of movie magic is my imagination takes it places <laughs> that it didn't really go. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so they started showing this movie. The first few minutes were hard to read. First of all, everyone thought when they saw they started seeing the Titanic footage on screen, of course, everyone knew about Titanic because, again, it had been all over the media. They thought they were just seeing a trailer for it before Great Expectations. So they didn't really know what to think. Uh, They were kind of confused and they were they were silent. They were wooden, you know. But then that that moment where after the, the initial, you know, wraparound scene where you get this moment where the footage of the the titanic wreckage transitions into the present the the 1912 footage it's a great shot where it it shows gloria stewart's head then the monitor behind her has the titanic it zooms in on that and then that transitions into the titanic absolutely great transition there were a lot of like like oohs and ahs you know during that scene like people were really into it yeah okay but don't don't make me pay for a ticket to a fucking movie. You're they not didn't pay for it. Me. It was free. Okay. This all right. is all free. They they all were right. invited to a free screening of Great Expectations. They were that. bamboozled into watching Titanic. You know, okay. it's a free movie either way they go. Right. All right. So they watch the they watch the movie. Uh, Cameron is there. The Fox Studio suits are there. And at the end of the screening, you know, they they hand out these test cards to get the reaction from the audience. There was they, a lot of avant avant garde artists in the audience that were like, "This is the weirdest version of Great Expectations <laughs> <laughs> ever seen." I, I love it. I don't remember the boat in Great Expectations. I love it. <laughs> this is exactly what I hoped for. So at the end of the screening, they got these test cards back, and they were the best that Cameron had ever had for any of his movies. Wow! They were, in fact, some of the best test screening cards that anyone that worked at Fox had ever seen after a test screening. For any movie that they'd ever released. Wow. Uh, there were some complaints, you know, uh, a couple of scenes during the sinking section of the film, some audience members felt went on too long. Uh, like there's a big, there's a big chase sequence with uh, David Warner's character, actually, like a, a, basically a big like action sequence, a gunfight of them chasing, you you know, you, you get Billy Zane chasing them briefly, but there's an extended version where, where David uh, Warner is chasing them with the gun, shooting at them. It's a big mm. action 
action sequence in the middle of the movie that a lot of people felt was unnecessary because it's like, ah, the ship's already sinking. We don't need <laughs> something else on top of that, right? Right. So, I got to be honest, I, I'm usually anti-test uh, audience, but... I think they're right in this case. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this this feels okay. Like, yeah, yeah, how many chase scenes do you need? I mean, and this is why they have these test screenings because some things, you know, when you don't have that distance from the film that an audience has, Mm. it's really hard to to see this stuff in context, you know? Yeah. That's why you have these scenes. Uh, So after the test screening, Cameron ended up cutting about a half an hour of footage from the film. Uh, Most action sequences that focused on secondary characters, like the one I mentioned, and it, it was basically, it was clear that the audience was connecting with Jack and Rose. So that's who they wanted to spend most of their time with. So they cut about a half an hour of footage of characters that weren't Jack and Rose, because every time someone else was on screen, people wanted to get back to what was happening with them. So just, just to be clear, there's a longer version of Titanic. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, it's never been officially <laughs> released. Unlike every other James Cameron movie we've talked right. about, except for the Terminator, there is not an extended cut of Titanic out there. Oh, yeah. there are uh, two there. Get ready for Avatar because there are two extended cuts of that. Oh, <laughs> uh, no, it's ridiculous. Uh, like uh, some of the studio had complained, complained, and like even Cameron says, like they, the initial complaints over the raw footage became more sparring over time as the cost spiraled out of control. The studio heads at 20th Century Fox and Paramount Pictures acted like they'd been diagnosed with terminal cancer. And, uh, oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, well, they didn't, he, they didn't have a whole lot to worry about because once the, the movie got released in December of 1997, the reviews were, were, were let's say, pretty good. Okay, let's say very good. Yeah, uh, probably the best <laughs> reviews that James Cameron's ever received in his career. When he was uh, when he was making those negotiations, like he ran into uh, Rupert Murdoch. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, and who uh, was the own own Fox. Yeah, who owned Fox? And uh, he said uh, he he ran into him. He said, I, "I guess I'm not your most favorite person in the world, uh, but the movie's going to be good." And he said that Murdoch looked at him and said, "It better be a damn sight better than good." You got to say it in the Australian accent. Rupert Murdoch's Australian. I saw another shrimp on the barbie. It better be a damn sight better than good. <laughs> Does every, every Australian starts a sentence about yeah. shrimp on the barbie? One hundred percent. They either wait. Do they start it with shrimp on the barbie, or and end it with crikey? Crikey, it... that better be a damn sight better than good. Uh, Look okay, at that. Is. Justin has an accent. Justin <laughs> <laughs> hey. never does that. All right. Oh, man. <laughs> oh. Just well done, Austra- sir. I think Australian's the only accent I can do. Oh. Just from watching man. a lot of Crocodile Dundee as a child. And from all those Tuesdays we spit it out back. That's true. Yeah. All the, uh, the, the authentic Australian restaurant Outback. Outback Steakhouse. <laughs> Eating all those blooming onions. Oh my god. Uh, well, the movie came out and, like I said, the, the the reviews were great. Robert Ebert praised it, as did the New York Times. Uh, some writers compared the film to movies like Gone with the Wind or the epics of David Lean. Uh, wow. Janet, Ma- Ma- Janet Maslin, writing for the New York Times, actually said, Titanic is the first spectacle in decades that honestly invites comparison to Gone with the Wind, which is huge. By the way, when we're talking about the, uh, the budget of this film, adjusted for inflation... T- Gone with the Wind is still, I think, the most expensive film ever made. Yeah, it's it's up there. Well, once you adjust for inflation, right, but right. anyway, once this movie, I mean, 
the filmmakers knew they had a good movie on their hands. The reviews were clear uh, and they knew that it was well liked. What they didn't know yet was whether general audiences would actually show up to see it. <laughs> but before we get into that, uh, I'd like to know, Gary, if you if you found uh, <laughs> <something>. <laughs> what kind of Internet reviews you found. On Titanic, I feel like, God damn it, people on the internet just hate James Cameron. For oh, no, they do. For dude. no fucking I reason. I tried to sort through this, but there's <laughs> like, I mean, there's no, there's no, oh my God, there's no uh, minimum amount of, or maximum amount of people that uh, just think it's too long or just have, you know, some bullshit to say about James Cameron. Uh, for, from From the idea that like, yeah, the people that are, uh, you know, I'll just say it here that that are shitting on Avatar for like, oh, it's Pocahontas or whatever. I mean, they were doing the same thing with Titanic. Yeah, they were like, oh, it's 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 fucking uh, Romeo and Juliet on a boat. Blowing that's literally water. how he sold the movie. Yeah, and it's how he <laughs> sold the movie. Like, it's like okay, that's the yeah. point. Yeah, that's, the that's what we're doing. Point. That's what we're doing thing. here. So people just uh, this is why I brought it up earlier. I'm like, uh, some people just hate this guy succeeding. People hate anyone who's popular. I, I, mean, I will but... say, I, I will say right off the bat, like uh, some some of the people, like I, I was looking through reviews at the time, and uh, Titanic uh, has dialogue that is notorious in some places too. Like some people just like hate the fucking dialogue. Uh, uh, in L.A. Times, like Kenneth Turin had like what really brings on the tears is. Cameron's insistence that writing this kind of movie is within his abilities. <laughs> it, ev- it isn't even close. I mean, his he's not a great at dialogue, and he'll be the first person to tell you that. Yeah. I don't uh, think his dialogue is awful. I just think it's unrealistic, but I don't care in a in, in the context of this movie. Slate's uh David Edelstein had a uh, Titanic carries some stinkers that wouldn't make the final draft of a days of our lives script. Wow, that, I mean that's rude. Woo. And uh, Salon had a uh, Stephanie uh, Zacharek who said loads of blockheaded dialogue. Um, I actually, you know, for as much as I'd love to shit on the dialogue, I didn't. I mean, I thought it like hit the point. It's like, fine. It, you know, it's, yeah. not, fine. it's not. Yeah. Especially <laughs> for the time period that it's ty- trying to portray and with yeah. movie magic and, and like movies of that time, like it felt like this is accurate. Like yeah. this is this is a movie from this time. Like this is, you know what I mean? Like it, yeah. it just, I don't know. I never, it feels, it feels right. Second, yeah. I never for one second, like, like having older Rose be an actress who was likely, you know, you know what I mean? Like an older actress that you could get during that time. And yeah. like, it, it just, I don't know. I loved it, but whatever, despite all that, there's still some people watching it and have been watching it for the last 10 to 15 years. And God dang it. They need a nap. <laughs> All right. Well, this movie was long, so I got plenty of these for you. Uh, I, <laughs> I did try to, uh, I just try to lessen them to some shorter versions. But let's uh, let's start off here. I'm gonna I'm gonna hit this one first because I have a little more information about it. But this is from RJS, uh, and this is from 1999 on IMDb. Uh, it says the film presents the distortion of facts this movie 
portrays First Officer William Murdoch in a way that is totally contrary to the truth, but instead suits a particular propagandist position. This is both immoral and grossly hurtful to Murdoch's descendants. No wonder the Chinese government recommended the movie to their people. It amazes me how modern American filmmakers seem to delight in tearing down the society and values that they have grown up in. This film is an insult to all those passengers and crew who showed such tremendous courage in the face of horrific death. In reality, it was not two 90s-style teenagers who were heroes in the Titanic. Uh, <laughs> Murdoch, by the way, is the is the officer who ends up shooting himself in the film. That is correct. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, for, for, yeah. for anyone wondering, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so there's there, there's like controversy around that. Uh, it, it's portrayed in like a few different things. It's uh, portrayed in like a '96 miniseries about the Titanic that was done. James Cameron did end up at the end of all of this going to the hometown of Murdoch and apologizing to the family saying that he did not mean this to be negative. Really? Um, yeah. And uh, he said, uh, uh, quote, I'm not sure you'd find that same sense of responsibility and total devotion to duty today. This guy had half of his life's lifeboats launched before his counterpart on the port side had even launched one that says something about the character and heroism. So uh, all the evidence is circumstantial. It's all like accounts uh, and stuff. And the Titanic is weird like that. That's just the way it is. I mean, yeah, you're, um, you're talking about like a, a situation where almost like more than half the people that were on it died. And the people who did not die are recalling their memories from something that happened during a very chaotic, the most chaotic moment they've ever experienced, you know? So, so memories are bound to differ. Yeah. Uh, so, so a lot of people said like, uh, no, he died like uh, getting swept out to sea. Like that was some of his shipmates that were there or like some of the uh, fellow officers. And then some of the people, you know, some of the authors that go back and look at it say that like, uh, you know, he was the man directly in charge of the ship leading up to the collision uh, with the iceberg. And so no matter what happened, he'd be responsible. So his career was effectively over. And so it's not unbelievable that he, you know, anyway, the point is weird situation and right. uh, weird first review to hit on. Right off the bat. <laughs> All right. So let's get to the real ones. The real ones, meaning the people that know what they're talking about. Here's a hopping Hessen title of their reviews. Uh, this is really bad. Quite possibly one of the worst movies ever made. This film ignores the heartrending stories of the 2,000 plus real people who were on the Titanic to present to us a redundant Romeo and Juliet storyline. Kate Winslet plays a spoiled free spirit who's being forced by her mother to marry the wealthy Billy Zane. I love that it says, by the way, the wealthy Billy Zane. <laughs> Kate Winslet <laughs> plays a spoiled free spirit who is being forced by her mother to marry Billy Zane. <laughs> so like, Sorry. Billy Zane is not playing anyone. No, no, it's just actual Billy <laughs> that's Zane. Just, Zane. That's just him. That's his, Kate Winslet not... is playing a character who is being forced to marry Billy Zane. <laughs> <laughs> On board the Titanic, she meets Jack, who teaches her to be free, or in other words, be trashy and self-centered. This movie is filled with bad acting and even the worst writing. The only redeeming features are the special effects, which are stunning, and the beautiful soundtrack. Sounds like a well, at least at least they liked uh, Celine. <laughs> Here's Jayak who says, uh, "Make another Terminator, Jim." 
I will never understand the common man and therefore will never understand the mass hysteria over this movie. I did not care about any of the passengers James Cameron took the time to introduce us to. In fact, we know none of the true heartbreaking tales of the RMS Titanic, only the fanciful romantic tale of a spoiled brat and the only American in steerage. It is frightening to me that America embraced this movie without ever learning one bit of true history about the disaster of the Titanic. Five will get you ten that most of America believes there was such a jewel as the heart of the ocean. We already know many fools clamored around the graves of anyone known as Jack Dawson. Most offensive, however, are Mr. Cameron's comments at the Oscars without any regard for the 1,523 lives actually lost on the RMS Titanic. Life is not a movie, and love does not conquer all. Wait, 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 wait a second. What are they talking about with the Oscars? I mean, he did the, um, he did the, like, I'm king of the world thing when he won best director. But when he won, when he won best picture, he, he very much like, like took a moment to honor the people who died on the Titanic. So that person is seemingly only focusing on one Oscar moment and not the other one. Well, you know what I mean? Life, life is mm. not a movie, and love does not conquer all. Tells me that person's just never been laid. But that's, like, that's <laughs> fine. <now>. Um, <laughs> how about uh, horrible horror films? Twenty three says insultingly pretentious drivel. I, I saved this one. I remember this one because they say insultingly pretentious drivel. I'm really excited to hear this because I don't know what could possibly be considered pretentious about this movie. This review is pretentious. That's the, that's the point. This is like a movie that is like, (laughs) I love a reader to audiences. (laughs) Yeah. The irony is always that the reviewer that calls it pretentious is going to be super fucking pretentious. Yeah. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Bloated neo-romantic crap. Other five descriptors of this movie. I honestly puke my guts out whenever the word Titanic is mentioned. Hype, insulting plot, non-period sets, terrible lame dialogue, fake history, all this make this the worst blockbuster, this side of Phantom Menace. Why do people like this movie so much? Really, pop crap is what this is, nothing more. People proclaim James Cameron as some good director. This is the guy that directed Piranha Part 2, The Spawning, for crying out loud. And if I see him on one more Titanic-type special, I'm going to puke. Honestly, he already made a trillion dollars off of one shipwreck. Can he leave it alone already? Titanic sucks, okay? Titanic sucks! Said all caps. They said they were going to puke twice in that um, <laughs> in, the, in that review. <laughs> yeah, I think they owe us puke. Yeah. Uh, James uh, Pascarella gave it one out of five stars. Profanity. Profanity? Profanity? Yep. That's all they said. <laughs> that was the review. There's not is there <laughs> profanity in this movie. Is there any? Is there like any profanity in this? I movie? don't know, but that's what they said. <laughs> uh, my stupid friend watched this on Saturday night when he was logged into my Amazon Prime account. Jesus, Adam, Titanic by yourself on a Saturday night? Really? I mean, <laughs> listen, I, uh, you know what that's fair i mean it is fair i'd like to talk shit about adam as well but i prob- i've watched this movie three times in the last week or two so uh two of two of which were solo uh solo viewing so i can't say a whole lot about it adam you know whatever makes you happy 
<laughs> this review was written on August the 11th, 2022. I didn't realize that. So my birthday this year. Wow. Uh, Happy from, birthday, Gary. Thank you. Thank you. From Preston, your brother. brother. I can always say that. Three hours of porn, magical <laughs> water tip, <laughs> magical water tip changes, and an event that we already knew the ending to since third grade fucking history class. You can't honestly expect me to believe one old lady stories could change this greedy fuck's mind on this mission for that fucking necklace. Number one, who's funding this expedition to find a necklace in the middle of the ocean? Number two, nothing that lady said is anything that man wouldn't have known already. It's the Titanic. It's sake. We get it. Only thing getting this movie half a star is Celine Dion and the song didn't even play till the end credits. So does it even count? Zero out of ten. Leo deserves better. <laughs> Leo deserves better. Three hours of porn sounds like a different movie than what I watched watching <laughs> Titanic. Although I did look it up, just so you know, and there is a Titanic porn parody called Bytanic, which is about, <laughs> as you can imagine, a bisexual Titanic parody. That's uh, something for everybody. Right, exactly. <laughs> I think on the last episode I mentioned I'm watching uh, uh, Six Feet Under, and they had to return uh, the Gatrix to the uh, video <laughs> store. <laughs> so, the, uh, is it a, oh, what's his name, Dexter? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, nice. Uh, I was super. Uh, I thought that was uh, pretty the fucking Gatrix. good. That's good. Sean says half star. Actually, awful. Why is this like six hours long? I can't wait for the 9-11 version to come out. Oh, ouch. Jeez. <laughs> James Cameron pulls out a book of the Twin Towers and says, Romeo and Juliet in these buildings. <laughs> <laughs> you jest, but it's as if you guys haven't seen that fucking Robert Pattinson movie. <laughs> Which one? What, t- Twilight? Which no. one movie are you talking about? Wait, hold on. Remember me? Yeah, and it's with uh, it's with the fucking the chick from Lost, right? Claire, Claire. Is it Claire? <laughs> I, I do remember that. I completely forgot about that movie until you just brought it up. Yeah, <laughs> he plays. Yeah, wow, that's it. That's it. It's it is this Claire from Lost, Emil De Raven, and uh, yeah, I think it's like a romantic drama, and then it's. In the summer of 2001. But then it fucking ends at the Twin Towers or yeah, something, right? He's like in the Twin Towers. Spo- like, spoiler alert, I guess. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I never even saw it. I just remember hearing a, a, that. I never saw it either. At, like but... the end of the movie, like he, he like looks out of the window and then it, There's like, a plane zoom, it, zoom, it zooms back and they're on the... Uh, the the World Trade... They're on one of the towers of the World Trade Center. But you had seen like somebody write... September 11th, 2001, or something right before right. that. Right, yeah. yeah. Uh, fuck that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I mean, I'm, you, you said that, I'm... but maybe people closer to the Titanic would have felt the same way. <laughs> right, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> um, how Robert about, Pattinson's uh, British, so it's not as close to home for him. Okay. And Emile de Ravine is uh, Australian. Australian? Yeah, yeah. So. yeah, so none of them... Yeah, what's up with that? They don't give a fuck. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you hear it here <laughs> first on Cinema Shocks. Robert Pattinson don't give a fuck about 9-11. <laughs> he said it. Edward said he don't care. Uh Jillian. 
half star. I had my first mental breakdown after watching Jack die when I was 10. And then I didn't cry for a whole year and a half after. Thanks a lot, mom. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds like less of a review and more of a cry for help. I was going to say, are we going to hear about the other mental breakdowns? You need to go to therapy, (laughs) ma'am. Here's a Mitski fan half star. I like James Cameron only when he makes cool action movies. This movie is so boring and terrible. Everybody knows the Titanic was an inside job. <laughs> George W. Bush did it. Did you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he did. He's so responsible. This is, this is rounding out very well. Yeah, like yeah. This Plot twist. Our next series is just going to be on Oliver Stone's World Trade Center movie. <laughs> right. <laughs> Avery gave it a half star saying, you're a fucking liar if you say you like this movie. <laughs> no, wow. <That's> a... <laughs> Jeremy says, uh, half star, this is Twilight on a boat, and in my opinion, the beginning of the teenage girl movie era. James Cameron is a 13-year-old girl. <laughs> <laughs> Does that person think that teenage girl movies were not made before 1997? I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Meadow says, uh, half star, awful. Awful film. Was forced to watch this New Year's Eve 2016 and I was trapped in a hotel in Japan and this was the only English film. I should have just gone to sleep. (laughs) One half star for Kate Winslet's tits. (laughs) I mean, I think they're they're worth more than that. (laughs) Uh, These are fun. This is a review by Real O.J. Simpson, who I... (laughs) (laughs) I hope it really is. Absolutely pathetic excuse of a movie. It was playing when I was convicted. Also, my son left me. Also, my son left me when he was three due to the lassophobia, which was prompted by this movie. He now lives as far away from the ocean as possible. I miss my wife. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, these are letterbox reviews and they're fantastic um all right caseville says uh half star war the republic is crumbling under attacks by ruthless sith lord count dooku there are heroes <laughs> on both sides <laughs> everywhere in a stunning move the fiend destroyed leader general grievous has swept into the republic capital and kidnapped chancellor palpatine leader of the galactic senate as the separatist droid army attempts to flee the besieged capital with their valuable hostage, two Jedi Knights lead a desperate mission to rescue the captive Chancellor. That's just the <laughs> opening scrawl to the Phantom Menace. <laughs> <laughs> All right, how about this? Half star from uh, Close Dark Voice. If I could choose between stopping 9-11 and stopping this ship from sinking, I would save this ship because I wish this movie never happened. Because it is a painful experience of a film. James Cameron, please God, make Avatar 2 90 minutes. That is now our third <laughs> 9-11 reference in this episode. Wow. It is. It's real weird. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, Simon Peterson gave it a half star and said, uh, what did Simon Peter said? The Simon Peter. Peter said. Simon Peter said. Simon Peter <laughs> is a <laughs> character from the Bible. Yeah. Right. Different, different guy. The absolute <laughs> worst film on earth. The Titanic is like a giant moldy elephant turd that has been microwaved to a subtle crisp. Only gets a half star because it takes place on a boat in the ocean and whales live in the ocean. I really appreciate a good whale, preferably a humpback whale. Anyway, this movie is trash. Fuck James Cameron. 
That guy wants to fuck a well. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Only a couple more. I'm trying to make them short. Half star from Jason. He says this tragic tale about Rose, an unfortunate redhead who destroys the will to live and every man that comes into direct contact with her vagina is three hours too long. First, Robin Billy Zane, national treasure and star of your mother's masturbatory fantasies, to lose his will to keep fighting the good fight against steerage. That's what it says. Next, she sucks the will to live out of Leonardo DiCaprio, national treasure and star of your mother's masturbatory fantasies, who proceeds to just let go and drown himself in the middle of the North Atlantic Ocean. And that death I'm sure about because I was out of my seat throwing Smarties at my TV, and that caused my cat to start tearing apart the living room in a sugar-fueled frenzy. Then, the old crone, whose vagina magic is as dark and powerful as ever, just throws away a priceless diamond like that has ever happened in the history of women or diamonds. Fuck off, movie. Be more like Speed 2. Oh, no. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So, speaking of old Rose, what do you guys think about the moment where she says... Um, it was most the most erotic. erotic moment of my life. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. I, and her granddaughter sitting there, I'd be like, Grandma, it's time to go to bed, man. Immediately <laughs> after what? Well, hold on. I'll finish this last uh, last review. Uh, this half star from Bash, uh, who says, There was space, you selfish cunt. <laughs> that's low that's also low-hanging fruit because that meme that's been memed to death. We're we're done with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it just felt like a good ending. Um so so to your first point the i don't know i told my wife immediately after watching i was like i feel like rose is a bitch and <laughs> i was like because I, I don't know she's just kind of like there with her granddaughter who has obviously grown up with a grandfather and uh, you'd assume at least a parent that is the product of a different relationship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're hearing your grandmother talk about how this is the best moment of your fucking life. I'm like, <laughs> it's just like, this is garbage. This is this is horrible. Like, Rose, you sound kind of like a dickhead. Like, does she say like a woman's like a woman's, woman's heart, heart or... is as deep as the ocean or something yeah, like that? Yeah, something it's like, that. like it's many mysteries or something. I don't know. Yeah, 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 anyway, yeah. I don't, I'm just saying, I'm just saying. Like, I don't care who you are. I don't care what sex you are, gender, anything. If you are with a partner and then you die and you could look back on that partner like 10 years later and they're like talking about the fucking person that came 30 years before you and they're like telling a whole fucking detailed story about you know what that's called, Gary. What big dick energy. Yeah, <laughs> is that what it is? <laughs> I'm just That's saying, you'll be like, "Oh, fuck this bitch!" Like, <laughs> fuck him! Like, this is what? What? What did anything I ever did for you manage? You're just like, "Oh, I was just like, whatever was left over. This yeah. is all you could get." Like, all little floppy seconds. <laughs> yeah. Hey, granddaughter, good to see you. Your grandfather, not a huge fan, but he was better than some i guess what a granddaughter had had jack not died you wouldn't exist (laughs) (laughs) exactly like the fucking granddaughter wouldn't even be a thing um i don't know well all right so titanic was released a week before christmas 1997 it came in number one at the box office but just barely just barely it beat tomorrow never dies the james bond movie by only 1.5 million dollars that opening week 
That's a very small margin. Uh, but remarkably, it made even more money the second week out, which just never happens in Hollywood. Movies never make more money on week two. But then it made even more money on week three. James Cameron and Fox had a bona fide phenomenon on their hands, and it wasn't stopping anytime soon. P- people, if you weren't alive or you weren't like old enough to see movies at the time the Titanic came out, you might not under be able to grasp just how big of a phenomenon this movie was but people were like there were lines around movie theaters to get into this like every showing was sold out for weeks and weeks and weeks at a time like people were seeing it in droves and they were going back they weren't just seeing it once but they were saying it seeing it two three four five times you know people were seeing it a dozen times it was insane uh and and it's really hard to to explain that i think to people now because that simply doesn't happen anymore uh because movies just aren't in theaters for that long anymore because they have to go like straight to streaming or whatever after a few weeks uh in fact for titanic the film's highest performing day came on valentine's day february 14th 1998 this is nearly two months after it had been released and it made $13 million on that one day alone. Wow. Which, even by today's standards, is absolute insanity. Yeah. The film remained number one at the box office for an astounding 16 weeks. Four months, this movie sat at the top of the box office. Movie, movies nowadays, like, if you're, if you're still number one on week two, you're doing pretty good. You know? Uh, it ultimately grossed $1.8 billion that's with a b billion dollars at the box office a record that knocked star wars out of the top spot as the highest grossing film of all time cameron had yeah he'd once again made the most expensive movie of all time just like we've said in the last two episodes titanic's final budget was around 200 million bucks but the film also became the most profitable film of all time Uh, titanic was also nominated for a record breaking 14 academy awards It won 11 of those, including Best Director, Best Editing, Best Picture. Uh, That's a record that actually still holds today. It's tied with with 11 wins. It's tied with Ben-Hur and Lord of the Rings Return of the King. Those three movies are tied for number one in in the number of wins of Oscars. Wow. All right. I mean, it was astoundingly popular when it came out. Uh, It was a phenomenon of the likes of which we're honestly, we're unlikely to ever see again. Uh, I mean, these days, making a billion dollars at the box office isn't unheard of. It, it's happened with at least 50 movies at this point mm. since Titanic. Uh, everything from the, the Transformers movies to the Pirates of the Caribbean movies to Jurassic Park or excuse me, Jurassic World uh, and the Star Wars prequels and the Star Wars sequels, uh, Avengers movies, you know. But if you look at if you look at a list of all the movies that have broke that billion dollar box office, which I, I looked up because I was curious uh, if you look at that, every single one of these movies is either part of a franchise, like the Marvel movies or the Fast and Furious movies, or their sequels, their remakes, or in a few cases, their kids' movies like Zootopia or The Lion King. Right. Right. But none of them are like a period piece romance. Uh, and, and none of them are, with the exception of maybe some of the kids' movies like Zootopia, um, none of them are really like original stories. There are two that are original stories, Titanic and Avatar. The rest of them are franchises or kids' movies, right? Wow. So that's that is that's a that's huge. 
That, that simply doesn't happen with these types of movies. It didn't happen then and it doesn't happen now. And we're unlikely to ever see a movie like this made again, especially for this cost. Like people aren't spending $200 million on a movie set in the 1920s or the 1910s where the first half of the movie is nothing but a, a romance for an hour and a half, right? Uh, it's just not the kind of things that studios fund anymore. It's not part of an existing IP. And it's honestly not the kind of movie that audiences flock to anymore. You know, people, this movie would not make a billion dollars today, I don't. And as it always happens with something that's as wildly popular as Titanic was at the time of its release, there was an inevitable backlash uh, where folks tried to delegitimize the film. Like a lot of the people in those reviews that you read, Gary, I feel like that's what's happening. People are shitting on it because it was popular because people think that's fun to do. So that, that brings me to this question. I, I think I've already kind of gotten a gist of it, but Gary, you had never seen this film before. You had actually actively avoided it for a, a quarter of a century, uh, owing largely to how oversaturated the media was when, when it came out, and specifically with Leonardo DiCaprio in particular, where after this movie, he was a phenomenon. He was on Teen Beat. He was, in, he was everywhere, you know? Uh, he went from being the well-respected star of small you know dramas to a legitimate movie star, thanks to this movie and to a slightly lesser extent, Romeo and Juliet. Uh, you, you could not escape the reach of this movie in 1997 you couldn't escape leo on every magazine cover you couldn't escape that damn celine dion song but you managed to avoid ever seeing the actual movie until like last week right i saw the <laughs> memes before the movie right yeah so I, so I have to ask i i i mean i've gotten the gist of how you feel about it but i really want to know like specifically like on your first viewing ever of titanic what did you think I thought the movie was pretty good. <laughs> okay. Well, like, I mean, it was, it's weird, man. Like, I think I, it's, it's so odd. Think as we're talking about it, like how impactful this fucking movie was. And it's like, there's more to this than filmmaking skill. There's more than just like casting the right people this is like those those lightning in a bottle moments like that right. that's got to be what it is like yeah. There's, yeah there's there's no other way to define this because the movie is good i, I and and by the way like that's not even me trying to discount it the way i say good like it's like the story is like it's fine yeah it's good i felt some emotion during parts of the movie um it's it's a good movie but also like you know i was like there's got to be more to it than this and and there is some some of the cool fantastical elements of it like how huge this ship is and there is like the awe that's presented cameron's good at that like it, yeah. it is it is pretty impressive uh some of my favorite parts like honest to god i'm not even kidding is like when it shows the inside of the ship and the fucking gears like popping up. I and love down. that. That that is that is James Cameron as an engineering nerd showing off some some stuff that he thinks is cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I saw <laughs> I, when I was watching the movie that was the that was some of the stuff that like really caught my eye. I was like, God damn, like this is fucking fantastical by, like, by the way when they did that scene peter lamont you know he used the same trick that he used on aliens to expand you know when they open up then the um the cryopods where he used a mirror to expand the length of the ship they yeah. did the same thing on that he used a mirror to make the bottom of that ship seem like it went on further 
Yeah, well, and, yeah. and and Cameron in the commentary was talking about like they actually went to an actual ship, like uh, and one that had a similar engine to what the Titanic would have had, and like filmed it, and then added in people afterwards to yeah. like like smaller, you know, like to because it would have been larger, but um, it was it was impressive. I was like watching, I was like, God, do you never think about this? Like how much of a feat of ingenuity this whole like thing. there are people <laughs> having to go through manual labor to get this ship to continue to move yeah yeah I'm like, like hard manual is... labor he, yeah. he does he does a great job of that and so like i want to give him props for all those things but how it like becomes like a fucking phenomenon like this i don't know like i don't i don't understand like it's just like the perfect combination of things have to happen it's not it's not clear it's it's not just because of how cool the titanic is it's not just because of how cool the wreckage is and all that stuff is cool it's wicked to watch and he does a great job everything holds up everything is still fantastic but it's also the love story of rose and jack and it's like he captures the same thing that you know i hate that i'm going to say this but like I don't know, fucking Bella and Edward get, you know, like it's like this. I mean, it is. That's that Romeo and Juliet thing. Yeah. You know? It's like this weird fucking romance thing that like captures also the youth that aren't looking for all of the extra stuff. They're just like, looking well, for the love story and the. I mean, speaking to that, you asking how, you know, how did this become such a phenomenon? I think it's because when this movie was released in the late 90s, like the 90s were a very cynical time for movies. Everyone wanted to be pulp fiction after 1994. Everyone wanted to make these edgy, you know, cynical movies. And that's what was popular, right? Uh even some of the like uh blockbusters like uh like Independence Day are largely pretty cynical movies. This movie's not. This movie is it wears its heart on its sleeve. And I think people connected with it because they were being given something that other movies weren't giving them at the time. Something that was just pure, like a, just kind of a pure, you know, romanticized story, which right. was rare at the time. And honestly has been rare since probably the, I don't know, the sixties. That's a good yeah. point. I mean, I, I believe that's possible. Like uh, I, I think that like for his shitty, <laughs> Like as crappy as we try to talk about James Cameron, uh, I don't think I don't think we're crapping on James Cameron. No, I think but, we've no. been fairly uh, we've been praising James Cameron quite yeah. a bit for and his ob- pushy and, and objective. I think yeah, yeah, yeah. pretty objective. I think for as, as as mean and pushy as he can sound, like the guy has some like significant like he has his like moral path like he has like his his set of ideals and these things i mean i started the first episode of the titanic talking about the fucking purple crayon right thing from him um so he has some like positive qualities it's just like i get i fuck man i don't know maybe it's fucking speed racer back in the wachowski series (laughs) right (laughs) like like i go back and watch it i'm like well just how are you gonna hate on something that's just so honest and just uh wholesome yeah (laughs) yeah it's just like these these people love each other and they met each other and it's just like a nice wholesome that's the fucking reason shakespeare like lasted it's the it's it's the uh god i don't know it's well fuck maybe that's why avatar is i hate everything 
<laughs> so Todd, Todd, you you'd seen this movie before, but I assume it's probably been a while. Oh yeah, it's been it, it's been every part of a decade. What uh, what was I'd your thought on um what were your thoughts on rewatch? Uh, you know, I I think I had definitely had enough distance that I was approaching it for um uh, approaching it with fairly uh fresh and objective eyes yeah. and I do like it. Um, everybody, you know, it's a great cast. I mean, even aside from Winslet and DiCaprio, you've got some some really great actors turning in pretty top-notch performances, honestly. Yeah. Um, I don't think that this is an I don't think that this is a all the time watch. I don't think that this is a once a year watch. I think this might be a maybe every five to ten years revisit it. Um it it's there i don't i don't see how anyone could say it's not well made in any aspect well um, todd todd like not not to step on you but like as we're talking about this and you even mentioned this like hitting on it objectively like it it's like okay look at this movie objectively like it's it's like well okay it's not your favorite movie of all time what's the shitty part there's no yeah. shitty part yeah yeah, like, really yeah. What, what's the part. what, I mean, what what's wrong with it i think if you look at i mean if i if i have to come up with something that's eh that's mediocre maybe uh you, i feel you like don't maybe, know. yeah I, it's, I feel like maybe the romance is nothing there i don't feel like there's a lot of uh unique things contributed by the romance itself well, I think which what makes I, the romance which, work so well is the fucking like god level chemistry between Leo and Kate Winslet. Right, right, and you got you got solid villains. You know, you got you know solid uh, you know uh, thing to try to overcome, which I think is what we really. I mean, we're we're on board with these characters, so you're in it with them. And I mean, again, that's me grasping. <laughs> I, yeah. I'm really no, no, reaching no. for something. It's a fine movie. I, but like I said. I, I don't know that I feel the need to revisit it often. But that's um, the part I hate about it because yeah. it's like, I, I, I think I feel like, uh, oh, it's good. Yeah, it, it is good. But it's like, I also look at those reviews from the time and I'm like, they're talking about the dialogue and I'm like, nah, I'm no. down with the dialogue. Yeah, yeah that's, that's fine. That's not it. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so, and I'm like, I can't tell you what sucked. I can't. There was nothing that sucked. No, it no, was. It, does, it doesn't it was, suck. It was nothing good. sucks about this. Well, here, here's my cards on the table. I I had not seen this movie in at least a decade, probably more than that, probably 15 years, maybe 20 years since I last watched this movie. Um, I had fond memories of it. I remember liking it when I saw it in theaters. I was a, I was a teenager when it came out, and I and I liked it, but. It's not one that I've had the, the urge to revisit, even though I revisit some of Cameron's other films fairly mm -hmm. regularly. Mm -hmm. Watching it this time, and, and uh, I've watched it three times preparing for this episode, um, I fucking adore this movie. I think it is an incredible piece of filmmaking. Uh, it, it's really easy, I think, to get caught up in the story of Titanic, the making of Titanic, because mm. a lot of people got bogged down in that when it was being made. Sure. And it's, it's easy to get caught up in the pop culture juggernaut that the film became. But if you step back from all that and just watch Titanic as a movie, which is easier to do now because it's been 25 years since it came out. Right. Um, you just watch it as, as a movie and it is an incredible piece of filmmaking. Uh, it is a, a, a an incredible 
story of romance and spectacle and humanity, but it's also a shining example, I think, of what a movie can be when a filmmaker has the devotion to his craft and the attention to detail that Cameron brings to the table. Because if anybody else had made this movie, it would not have turned out the way that it did. There, there's fair. enough of a mix of like spectacle and character level yeah. um, drama of the of the whole thing. Um, he he had a quote in one of the interviews I saw with him that said, uh, "My theory is you spend two hours setting up the story with people you really care about, and you play it out where you don't know whether or not they'll survive. I mean, how do you make a movie about an event where everybody knows how it ends? We all know the ship sinks." Yeah. You have to make it about how the sinking of the ship, which is inevitable, affects the people that you care about. Yeah, and yeah. I think that's absolutely yeah. correct because because you know the the action in the film, the sinking of the ship is incredibly engaging and incredibly well done. Uh, the effects, I think, overall have, have aged pretty well. No, no, there was like literally I hate it. There was not one thing that I saw. You you really want something to not like about this movie and you can't well, find I, it. I wanted to <laughs> have a reason I didn't see it for 25 right. years. Right. And now and you're like, not, uh, I wasted There's not one thing about the movie that I'm like doesn't still work. It <laughs> yeah. still holds up. It, but, it's like well, what as we go on in movies and the more and more stuff we watch, do you, if you if you follow us in Discord, I even had the same argument for like I don't know, fucking Hellraiser, which has nothing in common with this movie. <laughs> um, I was like, such wonders to behold. <laughs> well, I was like, I said in the thing, I was like, they made this movie and they did what they could with what they had and everything still holds up. Everything yeah. still like works. Like it, it, it still, you know, like the sequel goes on and like Hellraiser to try to like add more effects and blah, blah, blah. But it was like, no, but in the first one, they, they, they did what they had with or what they could with what they had. And it's still like watching it today. I'm like, God dang, that still works. And it's the same with Titanic and did, never in a million years. Did you think you'd hear a podcast uh, comparing Titanic and Hellraiser? But here we are. <laughs> Welcome to Cinema Shock. <laughs> Welcome to Cinema Shock. I'm just saying then I watched Titanic and I thought 25 years later, I'm going to watch this movie. Surely I'll see whatever bullshit I wanted to see about it. And it's like, no, not really. Like it's all the effects still work. Everything about it still works. Yeah. And, like it, and it's that character it's still that, work. <laughs> that's the stuff that like draws people in. I think the spectacle, the special effects, the action, the sinking of the ship and all that. But I think it's, I think it's the heart, the human heart of the film that gives it its lasting appeal. Mm. Um, you know, it, we've talked about this. We've talked about how there's a lot of heart in James Cameron's films that I feel like doesn't get a lot of credit. You know, there we've, we've talked about it on almost every episode of the series. You've got the relationship between Kyle Reese and Sarah in the original Terminator. Uh, the, the relationship between Ripley and Newt and Aliens, uh, Bud and Lindsay in the, in the Abyss, John and the T-800 in Terminator 2. You know, Cameron's work is really it, it really is rooted in humanity even though in all of these movies the action spectacle is more of a focus but titanic flips that a little bit and it makes it, it draws you in with the spectacle but its main focus really is the relationship between jack and rose and i think that's why the film works so well but it fucks with you because you think you have to care about jack and rose and even if you're fighting it even if you don't want to believe in jack and rose which despite your best efforts you will you will bit. yeah <laughs> it's like uh no but then he it's like everybody has humanity in it 
yeah. uh, from Kathy Bates, like standing on the ship to like Even... go back and check on people uh, to like I... the part that I admitted on social media that broke me was the musicians, the musicians, playing. dude. Yeah. And that that like, sequence, by the way, I, I remember you mentioning that. And it's always been one of my favorite moments of the film. It's when the musicians are playing and then they uh, they're saying, you know, we're, we're done. Let's go our separate way. Yeah, his buddies walk away. But the and one then he violinist starts, stays. The one violinist stays. He starts playing near my God to thee. And then the other guys turn around, start playing it with him. It's a heartbreaking moment. It it will it will never not wreck me when I watch this movie. <laughs> right. yeah, it's, it's, like, it's, it's, it was it's a really the, good it was moment. the point in the movie. Twenty five years later, me is like a fucking forty year old guy. It was like watching it and just like, holy shit! Like I'm yeah. okay. Here they come. Here yeah, and, like, and the thing uh, is, it's not just that moment, but it's it's how that moment plays out from then on because that they start playing that song and it it immediately cuts to the captain in the bridge knowing that he's going to go down with the ship, right? It yeah. cuts to him. Then it cuts to Victor Garber's character, the designer of the ship in his study. You know, the, the, the ship is leaning. Things are falling off the mantle. He is resigned that I'm about to die. You know, it cuts to these two old people in bed, laying in bed in their evening wear, knowing that we're about to die. They, yep. they have accepted it. Then it cuts to the, the scene that fucks me up. It cuts to Jeanette Goldstein's character telling a, a a bedtime story to her little kids yeah knowing that's, that's that it's rough. going knowing that it's going to be the last bedtime story that they ever hear yeah and then the scene ends the uh the the the, the song ends right the song ends and we cut back to bernard hill as the captain and then as the music fades out the glass shatters all that water comes rushing in and from that moment on, the last that that is like your that's like the powder keg blowing. Yep. Right. And then the rest of that, that that is your introduction to the final act of the movie where it is sheer chaos, you yeah. know, and just like people dying, people falling off the ship. It is like incredibly chaotic and intense from then on. Uh, and, and it's it's an incredible piece of filmmaking. Uh, starting with that scene with the musicians, but then all the way through that entire montage, it is honestly one of, I think the most well-constructed set pieces in a movie, like literally of all time. Uh, it, it just the way that it plays on your emotions, but it also works as a structural, you know, transition mm -hmm. in the movie. It's, yeah. it's really incredibly well done from James Cameron aspect from as a director to the performances, to the music, to the editing, especially. You know. All right, I will give it five stars on Letterbox. Shut up. <laughs> well, and, and here's the thing. We, you know, I, I said the main focus of the film is Jack and Rose. I, I think that's why the movie works because they they are your eyes through this, uh, and you know from the start that their love is doomed. You know what's going to fucking happen at the end of Titanic, right? But you're still hoping for the best, kind of against your own better judgment. Yeah. Right. Uh, but 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 I think that even though we we've, we've joked about it a lot. The fact that the audience knows the end of, ending of Titanic actually works in its favor. I think it actually contributes to the power of the film. Uh, when, when I was writing my notes for this, I, I, I was thinking about this and I, I got reminded of this quote by Alfred Hitchcock, a very famous quote by Alfred Hitchcock about the difference between <clears throat> surprise and suspense. So basically what he says, I won't read the quote exactly, but he's saying that basically there's a bomb underneath a table between two people, right? Nothing happens and then all of a sudden boom, there's an explosion. That's just surprise. Not, you know, no big deal. The audience is surprised. It's like a jump scare in a horror movie, right? Right. But 
if you want to talk about suspense, there's a bomb underneath the table. The audience knows it. Maybe the director has shown a shot of somebody placing the bomb under the table, setting the timer. And then you have two people at that table and they know that that bomb is there. They know that it's going to happen. It's going to blow up at some point, right? We know that, let's say we know that the block, the, the bomb's going to go off at one o'clock and there's a, there's a clock on the wall in the background and it's 1245, right? That is all of a sudden, whatever conversation those two people at the table are having is incredibly suspenseful because we know that there's a bomb about to go off under that table. That's Titanic. Wow. The sinking yeah. of the sinking of Titanic is the ticking bomb. We know it's going to sink. It's not about whether or not it's going to sink. We know it's going to sink. But knowing it's going to sink adds an undertone of suspense to literally every single thing that happens in the first two hours of this movie because you know where you know th- where things are going. Yeah. And Cameron spends the first hour, hour and a half of the movie setting all of this up you know we we get swept up in the romance we get swept up in the details of this ship its opulence we almost forget that the ship's going to sink right (laughs) cameron basically makes us as the audience a passenger on the titanic Uh, we're now participants in this story so that when the ship inevitably does hit that iceberg we experience that as not an audience necessarily but as a another passenger on the ship Mm -hmm. and I, i really don't think you know, as, as we're we're about to wrap up this series on James Cameron, and a lot of the focus has been upon, I think, his technical wizardry. Uh, I don't get, think he gets enough credit, though, as a storyteller. You know, uh, I think that the flashback structure in this, for instance, is a stroke of genius. I really do. I know, I know that it was ostensibly there because Cameron wanted to dive down to the actual wreckage of the Titanic, uh, and his, the wraparound story is kind of his way of working that into the film. But it does a couple of other things as well. I think we, for one, we become Rose's audience. We're captivated by her story, just like Bill Paxton and Louis Abernathy are, you know. Uh, We feel uh, that helps us to feel connected to everything else that's going to happen. But then he does this really cool thing where he shows, uh, Louis Abernathy shows uh, old, old Rose this crude animation of the actual sinking of the Titanic. Cameron's not even pretending that the audience doesn't know what's going to happen to the ship. He's literally showing it to you in the first 15 minutes of the movie, exactly how it's going to happen at the end of the movie. Uh, And that establishes all of that, Uh, which only again, adds to the suspense, suspense. you know, Uh, another thing is I think that Leo, Leonardo DiCaprio got all, all the press really at the time of this release. Like I said, he became the teen beat cover model, but Make no mistake, this is Kate Winslet's movie. Mm. Like, this is, I mean, this is Rose's story. It's literally Rose telling the story. Almost the entire movie is shot from Rose's point of view. Even, uh, there's a couple of moments like when uh, Kate Winslet, or I'm sorry, when Leonardo DiCaprio is talking to um, Kathy Bates, she's giving him the tuxedo. We see him walk in with the tuxedo. That's all from his point of view. Once she walks down those stairs, though, it switches to her point of view because this is Rose's story. Yeah. It's a story about Rose gaining her independence. Uh, it's it's easy to see Titanic as an outlier in Cameron's filmography because it's a period piece. It's not sci-fi, et cetera. But I think Rose fits into the same category of strong women that have populated his other films. Uh, I really think she is, she is in the same vein as Ellen Ripley and Sarah Connor, just in her own way. 
I mean, it's not that Jack isn't a hero. He is a hero in his own, you know, uh, of course he's a hero. He sacrifices himself to save her. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what he really is, is he's the catalyst for change in Rose's life. He is what helps her gain her independence. Uh, he, he helps her to live her life. Like he says in his, uh, the dinner speech, make it count. Yep. The only reason she's able to do that is because he sacrifices himself to save her. Uh, because, and, and one of my favorite moments of the movie I've, my, my two favorite moments of the movie are the one that Gary mentioned, the one with the, the musicians, uh, that whole sequence. But the other one is one that people don't talk about, I feel like, a whole lot. And that's at the very end, that final shot of Rose's photographs on her bedside table. Yeah. Uh, she survived because of Jack's sacrifice, and she was able to live a full life. We see her headshot. She was an actress. We see her with these like tri- tribesmen in Africa. We see her riding a horse, flying an airplane. All of this stuff that she would not have been able to do had she not survived, right? She was able to live a full life because of this. And in a very like showy movie, a very like big Hollywood epic, the fact that this simple shot of black and white photographs is like, that's what really drives it home to me. And I think that's a testament to Cameron's skill, not as a technical filmmaker, but just as a storyteller honestly yeah i think so yeah i i i I spoke for a few minutes about what he did with the striptease scene in true lies Mm -hmm. like how that was so important for those characters and all of that happened with minimal technical wizardry and zero dialogue yeah like we know who the who these characters are and and we get to see them change right in front of our faces in exactly. one scene and i think yeah seeing yeah leo got all the press but yeah this is uh rose is the protagonist she's the one that goes through the big change from beginning to end of this narrative yeah she has a the the, the major like character arc yeah uh he leo really doesn't to, you get to like talk all that time and like make all the good points just and like i don't i don't it, it's just this is terrible. Like you're, well, I... you're making all the smart like <laughs> analysis of a movie. Uh, no, you're you're a hundred percent right though. Like listening to you talk about it, like maybe made it even hit me. Made it hit me even more. Like that, I'm like, holy shit! Like it is. It is that he he makes God. He crafts this story so well that he sucks you in with the stupid teen romance. And I, I mean, that is a, is a macho super buff dude. Um, <laughs> guy, you know, Gary guy who hangs out with professional wrestlers. On yeah. Our yeah. I'm totally, guns out. Gary. I'm totally. Like, guns I'm out just, Gary. I'm, I am toxic masculinity. Defined. <laughs> um, they're like, you, you, you're like, okay, well, that's the story, obviously, right? Like, it's it's Jack and Rose, and it's like this bullshit. But, like, in the process of the story, like, ends up making you, uh, so a couple of points, care about the people that are also there. Mm-hmm. All these people that we talked about. Like, all these people that just are, you know, you could look at as side stories. But, I mean, I don't know the the musicians broke me 
how fucking good do you have to be that like the people you don't fucking care about for i don't even know their names yeah Yeah. it's just like okay well they broke you oh the mom talking to their kid the old people sitting in the bed like the mom talking to their kid who's literally credited as irish mother i think you know like yeah yeah. (laughs) it's like that's pretty good like it's it's pretty solid and then yes yes i will say this i will say this as a uh, as a dude who was a teen at the time who just looked at this as like, fuck you, Leonardo DiCaprio. I don't want to see you do studly Leonardo DiCaprio things like I'm an <laughs> incel or whatever I was. At the time. <laughs> um, I looked at it as like a lot of girls love this movie. A lot of a lot of young women love this movie. They love the story that it tells. And now as I'm like listening to to what you were even just saying and like thinking back on it, I'm like, it's not about Leonardo DiCaprio. Mm-mm. It's not about fucking how studly he is or and he's good uh, in the movie and he's very... attracted to the yeah. dirtbag dude. Yeah. Just, he's know... very pretty to look at. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, no, he is. He is. And it's cool to be attracted to it, but it's, it's more than that. It's not, it's not about the dirtbag boy. Look, it's about the like Rose is finding her place in this mm-hmm. world, in this situation that like everybody's told her who she is and what she, what she is. And, and he, he allows and, her to and be and her, her be, and her she being wants to danger- be. Yeah. Her being dangerously close to a life of misery yeah right that near miss (laughs) and she breaks out of it like she she saves herself at the same time like it's Mm -hmm. it's just like he's a part of that he's just the catalyst for it but she did it on her own yeah yeah and so i think that a lot of people even for me at the time that were like writing this off as this one thing that it's just like oh here's another romeo and juliet story or like whatever (laughs) it's just like no like rose is rose is becoming a independent woman like rose is like finding herself like rose this is this is less about leo than it is about rose just deciding i don't need any of this other shit and like i can do whatever i want and uh ah, well fuck him fuck james cameron (laughs) and fuck this movie Gary's so mad that he liked this movie. I do. <laughs> I, I, I feel like I kind of am. Like I'm like, God, it, it really is. Like it's just terrible that he's so good at like making me give a shit about all these things. Yeah. And it, it's just like you you want to find, and it's like anything we're saying here, you're like, all right, well, it ain't that good, guys. Come on, back off it a little bit. And then you want to be like, all right, well, tell me what's wrong with what we're saying. And it's yeah. just like I don't think you can. Where's the lie? Yeah, where's the yeah. lie? Where's the lie? It's just like fuck, man. Titanic <laughs> is pretty fucking good. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, <laughs> I will say this about Titanic. One thing that I also love, just if I could, if I could back off this shit that makes me want to cry about it. Uh, uh, one person that had an issue with this film, I mentioned him earlier. Uh, I think, I think in the what would be the last episode talking about uh, time travel was Neil deGrasse Tyson, uh, who saw this movie. Uh, at the time it came out and he says he saw it at the scene where Rose and Jack are there and Jack's dying. She looks up and it shows the sky. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you don't know, know the grass Tyson, by the way, he's a famed astrophysicist who uh, 
has a lot to say about movies all the time. He, it's a lot to say but, about everything. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> has a lot to say about everything and 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 had and, and leaned into it too much probably at this point. But um he 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 says they they look up the night sky, no clouds, perfect sky. You see the stars, and he says in the movie theater at the time this movie came out, he was like, That is not what that sky would look like. <laughs> <laughs> of course he did of course he did and he says it wouldn't have bothered him so much if a bunch of the marketing for titanic hadn't been about how accurate this movie is like they went to lengths to make sure to portray every single thing about this being perfect uh he was like you put patterns on the china and the titanic that you can't 100 verify as accurate uh, and you could verify the sky, and he didn't do that. He said he was very bothered by that. Shut up, Neil deGrasse. <laughs> he said not only he said not only did you not accurately portray the sky, you made a lazy sky. Meaning they actually had one side of the sky and mirrored it on the other side of the sky. So it's not even a whole real sky. It's just like half a sky and a reflection of the other sky. Now he says he was told later that the reason for this was is because something we talked about earlier. This is a half a ship. And so they duplicated Mm -hmm. uh, and reflected it over to the other side. But whatever. Anyway, he wrote James Cameron a letter uh, that he says was with his finest letterhead to let him know you fucked up this guy. He said he never heard back. Is there an expiration date on which we can stuff someone into a locker? Wait, <laughs> hold on, Todd. Hold okay. on, Todd. Years later, Neil deGrasse Tyson Buff said to Cameron, and uh, it's at some kind of event for like NASA. Or He's something. like, finally, I'm going to get an answer. <laughs> he says, he asked Cameron, did you get my letter? <laughs> no. <laughs> Tyson explains and Cameron tells him, this stuff is uh is this he says camera says is like yeah it's all post-production it wasn't really on me so i don't know <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> <That's it. laughs> so a few more years pass Cameron's receiving an award at the museum that neil degrasse tyson works for tyson gets an invite he goes there he asks cameron he said or he asks if james cameron is actually going to accept the award they say yes and so he goes and he goes to the museum and they talk again, and Tyson says, did you give any more thought to what I said about this guy? And James Cameron says, you know what, Neil? Last I checked, Titanic has grossed over like a billion dollars worldwide. Can you imagine how much more money it would have made if I had to fix the fucking sky? <laughs> <laughs> Bird! Bird! But, uh, let it go, but, Neil. But... <laughs> Two weeks later, he says, this would have been around 2012, Tyson gets a call. He said he can't remember the guy's name, but the guy calls and says, I'm so-and-so. I work post-production for James Cameron. And he says, Mr. Tyson, Mr. Cameron is working on the centennial version of the movie Titanic. Centennial? 100 years? Yeah, it was a uh, a centennial version. Oh, for 1912 to 2012. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, okay. He told me I should call you because apparently you have a sky I can use. 
<laughs> so, nice. And so no, from the version there on, like apparently James Cameron replaces the sky. Neil deGrasse Tyson like mapped out the sky. <laughs> so I wonder if the version that's on Blu-ray is the corrected sky. I don't know. I, I really don't know because I am not a nerd, but <laughs> yeah. How, how would I ever know? <laughs> how would I ever know? I don't know. But Neil deGrasse Tyson said that they need to get a call and says, you have a sky we could use. Can you please get that sky? That's awesome. <laughs> I love that. James Cameron fixed the sky. Well, the movie is getting re-released in February of next year in 3D in theaters uh, for, a, I guess, a belated 25th anniversary. And uh, maybe we'll get to see the corrected sky in that. We'll, we'll I take, guess. A, take a little cinema shock <laughs> outing. And we'll I was going to say, together. I think that sounds like another field yeah. trip. Yeah. Yeah. Gonna, Neil Tyson, if you, you can, you can Google this. I mean, you'll find a YouTube video of it, him, him telling the story. And Neil deGrasse Tyson has like the printout of like, there's some company that will do apparently the night sky for like whatever date you give them. And uh, now, so he has like a poster of like, the sky of the night that the Titanic sank, like wow. what it would look like. <laughs> That's crazy. Exactly. And so, <laughs> wow. but like where the that. Milky Way would have like, like, how do you, you would have seen everything. <laughs> and, uh, and so apparently it's been fixed. Wow. In the most recent versions of the film. Thanks. Thanks, Neil DeGrasse Tyson. We appreciate <laughs> it. <laughs> so in his review for the film, Roger Ebert said, uh, movies like this are not merely difficult to make at all, but almost impossible to make well, uh, which I, I think is a great quote from his review. Uh, and James Cameron, you know, he managed to fight for his vision. He managed to fight the, for the film that he wanted to make. He wanted that. He got that movie on the screen. He managed to make it and make it well. Uh, no other film in history has had the kind of journey to the screen that Titanic had, and it probably won't again. To be honest, uh, there because no no movie is going to construct an entire studio the way this one that it's all going to be on fucking green screens, you yeah. know. Uh, and there are a million things that could have gone wrong with this movie, from the script stage to filming all the way through editing. You know, like when when they were doing um, test screenings, the scene I mentioned with the the long uh, uh, gunfight scene, you know, the the gun chase. They that's the scene that they got the most negative reviews on or the negative cards on right once they took that out once they made the decision to take that out it was smooth sailing that one decision could have made this a billion dollar movie or not a billion dollar movie you know it's not that that it's not that that scene made it bad it's just that it's contributes to the overall feel of the movie right so even leaving that in it could have been a a disaster any misstep could have caused this film to pardon the pun but to sink uh, the, but the amount of things that had to go right for this film to turn out the way it is is pretty staggering. Another one of those things that I, we have to talk about that could have gone terribly wrong is that fucking alternate ending. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I didn't know anything about this alternate ending until like a few days ago. I, I found it on YouTube. Sent you guys the link. I think it's on the Blu-ray and stuff too as a deleted scene. But um, it's wild. <laughs> so for those who haven't seen it so you know how the movie ends you've got uh old rose she goes out by herself she turns out she has she's had the blue diamond the heart of the ocean the whole time she oopsie daisies and drops it into the ocean <laughs> oopsie daisies <laughs> so in the original ending though 
you've got that the scene uh, in in the in the final film you've got the scene where uh bill paxton's talking to Susie amos he has a cigar he's like i was saving this for when we found the heart of the ocean then he tosses it into the water well in the alternate ending these they, they kind of cut that between him and they edit that between him and Rose and he, you know, he throws it and then they look and they see her on the edge of the ship and they're like, Oh my God, she's going to like kill herself or something. <laughs> That's kind of how it plays. Like they're, they're afraid that she's about to jump off the ship and they confront her and she shows Bill Paxton that she has had the diamond the whole time she basically like holds it in front of him she even i think she even lets him touch it right like yeah like, he's just like, like well he he's just like oh don't do anything crazy she tells him whatever she tells him and he's like can i just hold it yeah one time and, and she gives this big speech about how like the only thing that really has value is your memories and your the, th- the life that you live it's all nice and sweet but also like kind of a dick move this guy has been spending a lot of money trying to find this diamond you've had it the whole time and then you drop it into the ocean right in front of him (laughs) like dropping it into the ocean in the final film kind of a dick move right doing it right in front of the guy even worse (laughs) i think it's it i'm really glad they cut that ending out because it is bad yeah it's bad for a number of reasons one (laughs) of those is that you just mentioned also that like anybody who cared about where the heart of the ocean is they're like okay well we just saw where she dropped it yeah just stop the ship we don't have to dig through a (laughs) fucking titanic yeah (laughs) stop the boat drop the sub pick it up we're we're, we're good just go get it (laughs) yeah yeah yeah, it's, it's it's tough because like I don't know. It, it just adds on to like the bullshit I was saying earlier. It's just like, oh, Rose is like, oh, your grandfather didn't mean anything, blah, blah, blah. You're right. It's like, also, I've had like a fucking billion dollars worth of jewelry right here in my hand. And <laughs> yeah. you know what? Fuck our grandchildren and my great grandchildren. Like, let's just, I'll just put it over here in the yeah. ocean. And I don't know. <laughs> Fuck you. I guess I don't know. Maybe that's capitalism. Well, I'm glad that I I mean, that's (laughs) part of filmmaking is some things don't work and you get rid of it and it's not in the final film. So the final film works. So, but go on YouTube and watch it. I I would uh, recommend just to see what, what might've been. Yeah, that's a good story. (laughs) The worst part about this is, is even without that story, there's like a million stories about the Titanic that you just can't even like fucking, I don't know. I was reading before we started this episode about uh, uh, this guy, uh, uh, Navratil or whatever. Um, And he was this uh, French guy who met this girl. He was 26. She was 16. uh, 1907 or so. So so it's gross, but whatever. But normal. But normal. normal. They, They ended up having the two kids and there was some argument between the two and he ended up like stealing the two kids from her and getting on the Titanic, Mm. like to escape, like he was escaping to like keep the kids or something. And, uh, he was on the Titanic, but then the women and children were the only people to survive. So like the kids got off, but he ended up dying in the Titanic. And, uh, um, I don't know. It's just a weird, there, there's these weird stories that, yeah. like, that there's like, a you know, however many people were on the Titanic, there's like, I'm sure like all these different stories. He was uh, uh, because of his name or something was identified as Jewish and buried in this like Jewish cemetery, but he was like Catholic. So 
Hmm. Jokes on huh. him. But uh, <laughs> but but anyway, there that's a short version of that story. But my point is, is that like, uh, well, there were two thousand people plus. On the, this, yeah, there are so many people. That's, on this that's two thousand stories. And and James Cameron managed to like have, you know, like the one through line, but like managed to get like a pretty solid amount in there. I mean, even mm-hmm. that old couple that you know we're ta- we're talking about earlier, like that that was a real deal like that that those that was a couple that was on that ship like a legit um i think it was uh uh strauss was their last name uh i think ida was the woman uh according to my notes i'm trying to act all confused but i made a note that said (laughs) ida was the woman um she was offered a seat on the lifeboat and she refused uh she didn't leave her husband yeah she wanted to stay with her husband Mm. said as we've lived together we'll die together and uh apparently you jump i jump i mean that's jack and rose that's what rose does well well apparently there was a scene in the film uh that showed that moment um and it was uh her saying where you go i go and uh that's what inspired rose's line later in the film that the, the older couple got cut but like rose says the same thing like later yeah. on about like where you go i go yeah and it was but anyway it's just i don't know man it's fucking cool and, and the more you talk about it, yeah fucking love the movie and i don't care i like titanic yeah you're allowed to like titanic gary it's fine <laughs> i like titanic <laughs> shut up todd <laughs> all right so let's get into uh before we end this episode further viewing what would you guys pair with titanic Oh, well, let me jump right on in here. Asylum made Titanic 2. Oh, yeah. So you guys should check <laughs> okay. that out. Probably, I don't know. I haven't seen it. <laughs> <laughs> but Titanic 2 exists. How about Thumbtanic? Remember that one? Remember all those thumb movies in the early 2000s? <laughs> what? The, Steve, Steve Odekirk, remember those? Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, my God. I forgot all about that. They those. did like Bat Thumb and all that stuff. Yes. And Thumb Wars. Thumb Wars was a big one. They did a thumb a Thumbtanic. And it even had a parody of the Celine Dion song called My Heart is a Thumb. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean wow. clearly the movie you got to hit on is uh, A Night to Remember. That's the easy one. That's like, the easy that's, one. Yeah. Yeah. That's the movie. I, I, I'll i throw in uh, Moulin Rouge. How about that? Yeah. Okay. I can oh. see that. I mean, it's okay. a, it's, a, it's kind of that Romeo and Juliet thing. Yeah, it's got the Romeo and Juliet thing. And it's, a, I don't know. What do you want? What do you want out of this movie? Because it's, <laughs> it's weird. You want to? I, mean, I I adore that movie. So I don't know. We could do Star Trek Three: A Search for Spock or something. Sure, I guess you yeah. could. That's weird. Uh, what about you, Todd? <laughs> uh, I went, you know, a little little bit of a different direction uh, as usual. I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tried to think outside the box a little bit, um, but I went with The Last Samurai from two thousand three. Okay. Interesting. Okay. Um, because I felt like a lot of jack's motivations and rose's motivations kind of culminated in or were echoed i should say in uh tom cruise's character of captain nathan algren he's uh you know rose is kind of regretting the life that she's had to this point and the life that has been laid out before her much like captain nathan algren you know regretting he, he's a war hero, but he mm. regrets the things that he's done in his life and he's ready for it to end. Just like Rose, she was ready to jump off the ship. Yeah. Um, but it's when this other character who's kind of living in squalor, 
but who has this very romantic life uh, comes in and shows him uh, this different, uh, you know, it gives him a different perspective and shows him how things could be and, you know, to live a life with, with honor and respect and all of that. And it sort of changes uh, Captain Nathan Algren's, you know, point of view and causes him to go forward and live a life that is truly honorable. And um, I just saw a lot of those things from Jack and Rose sort yeah. of embodied in these characters. And it's a period piece, a um, few years, you know, about five, six years, made about five, six years later. It's one of my favorites. I really dig it. And um, yeah, so the last samurai 2003 nice that's uh that is outside the box but i like, I like your your thinking on that that's very interesting yeah uh so i i, I got a couple here uh one is uh if from the kind of disaster movie side of things mm. the poseidon adventure 1972 ah. yeah it, it's basically it's about a a, a ship who it, like a luxury liner who gets flipped over Anyway, Beside an Adventure, really, really good movie. Uh, on the other side of things, uh, another older film I think that would pair really well is from 1965. You know, the Titanic gets uh, gets compared to David Lean a lot, but I would say David Lean's Doctor Zhivago. Doctor Zhivago is another. Um, it's another romance set against a kind of historical moment. In this case, the Russian Civil War and World War One in Russia. Uh, it's an incredible movie. It's also very, very long, just like Titanic. So it's a li- <laughs> I think it's a little bit longer than Titanic, actually, by about 15 minutes, if I remember oh. right. Uh, but a really outstanding film. Really, really great film. So those are my picks. Poseidon Adventure, Dr. Zhivago, and I guess Thumbtanic. Thumbtanic. <laughs> nice. <laughs> if you want to be a real piece of shit, you could watch The Notebook. Oh, yeah. you sure. Could, you yeah. could do that. This is a similar story. Uh, Jack and Rose. It's also may or may not have made me sad by the oh, end. Yeah. <laughs> you know? We don't have to talk about your feelings, Gary. Well, I feel like we're in it now. So let's, <laughs> let's make this a part three. Oh, all right. Feelings. Well, let's, let's just wrap it up and say that uh, after the release of Titanic uh, and the three plus year journey that it took to get the movie on the screen, James Cameron was ready for a break. Uh, he wanted to spend some time with his daughter. He wanted to relax, maybe do a little bit of, you know, mild exploring. Uh, so at the, the height of his career, uh, the, the, you know, the highest heights that a director could ever be at, James Cameron stepped away from feature filmmaking. He wasn't like resting on his laurels. I mean, he was what he described as the uh, the busiest unemployed filmmaker in history. Uh, but it would be another 12 years before he released another narrative film. And it was actually one that he started working on before Titanic. And that film would once again, end up being the most expensive film ever made. (laughs) (laughs) And It is going to be the subject of one of our next episodes. Uh, Of course, I'm talking about avatar. However, we have decided that we need a episode in between Titanic and avatar, a little, uh, I'll call it a bonus episode, I guess, but it's going to be, you know, it'll be almost a full episode. Because, uh, you know, doing a little exploring on this, James Cameron was, he was doing a lot in those 12 years between Titanic and Avatar. So I feel like, you know, it's either, our, our choices are either we we devote a little, you know, shorter episode 
to that, or we fold that into Avatar and have to turn Avatar into a two-parter like we did Titanic. So, oh boy. Those, those, those were the choices. So, instead, dude, dude, we're this deep in James Cameron. We're like so. We're like so deep in James Cameron. We're like wrist oh, deep yeah, in yeah. James Cameron. It's time. I lost to just my like, watch. <laughs> yeah, it's time to like we're gonna get elbow deep in James Cameron. Like we might as well just go all the way. You know, so, at this point. Well, so instead of doing our regular like bonus episode where we do our preview, uh, we're going to talk about those years in between Titanic and Avatar. And we'll probably give our you know preview thoughts on Avatar, you know, going into that like we do on our bonus episodes. But we want to release this as a regular episode. And then we'll get into Avatar after that. And that'll be the end of the James Cameron series for now. He's got four more avatar movies coming so <laughs> we'll revisit them down the line but for, but for now we've got those two episodes left and uh and then that's it we're at the end but we're not there yet guys we still got a little ways to go on do. this journey i don't i don't even know how to live my life without james cameron your, gary your heart point. will go on mm. <laughs> we'll see <laughs> well that's all i got for us guys oh <sighs> Man, I can't wait to 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 get more into this, especially as the years go on. Like Kate Winslet at the end of this said, uh, "quote You'd have to pay me an awful lot of money to work with James Cameron again." Uh, but she's uh, in Avatar too, so yeah. Well, apparently, uh, <laughs> wish granted. Yeah. <laughs> so um, it's uh, we'll we'll see. But yeah. uh, James Cameron's a, a fun subject. But it's really, it's been really fun. So, but we're not Ooh, done yet. We still got a ways to he's go. He's hard. I can't wait to you know, like we're gonna get through James Cameron, and then we're gonna go to somebody maybe a little looser. I don't know, a little looser. But but James Cameron is, I I know more about James Cameron than I ever thought I'd know. You know and, more about Titanic than you thought you'd ever wanted to know. Yeah, and I'll tell you what though it made me appreciate it even more. So yeah. that's the idea, right? That's, that's what we're here for. That is what we're here for. I, I really think that like, you know, I watch usually my, my process, a little peek behind the curtain on these is I will most of the time watch the movie before I start doing any of my research. I'll watch the movie. I'll do research write my notes for the episode and then I'll watch the movie again. And it gives me a whole different perspective on it. So mm. the idea, you know, it's I, hopefully for our listeners is that they're listening to this, they're getting a different perspective on the movie. And then when they revisit it, they'll have a whole new appreciation for it that they might not have had before. It's similar Thanks. to like when I used to uh, be a lot more drunk and stay up a lot later. And then I would watch like Jason goes to hell at like three o'clock in the morning yeah, and eating, the alcohol uh, gave you a better appreciation. Yeah. I would eat a <laughs> mini pizza and drink a beer and I'd watch Jason goes to hell with the director's commentary. And then you'd be like, these <laughs> yeah. are what these people were going for. And now I have a better appreciation appreciation of Jason goes to hell, <laughs> <laughs> which is something that not a lot of people can say. Right. <laughs> and so you're like, Oh, this movie is better than I gave. It. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, uh, well, until next week, not unlike Titanic, <laughs> but until next week, uh, you know what? May the wings of liberty never lose a feather, especially in these in these strange times. And you know what? <laughs> uh, I'm going to switch mine up for this one. Here's to making it count. Oh, I've never spoken of him until now. Not to anyone. Not even your grandfather. A woman's heart is a deep ocean of secrets. But now, you know. There was a man named Johnny, and that he saved me in every way that a person can be saved. I don't even have the keys. He exists now, 
only in my memory. <laughs> there, the flute starts playing, and we go into sleep. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the king of the globe. Fatty. Trust me, my Teach me to spit, Jake. Okay, geranium. Oh. 